Welcome to episode 104 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And all this really is, is a conversation of old friends. Yeah. And uh, we have uh, some old friends that we're going to be uh, talking about uh, tonight. Well, old friends that from albums, we actually don't know these people personally. But they've had musical recordings we talked about before on the podcast. Now that we're passed by our second year anniversary, actually, into year yeah. three here. Into the third year. God. That's right. And <laughs> What am I still doing here? Well, old friends, <laughs> how it all came about. Mike and I have known each other for more than 20 years, if any of you yeah. haven't uh, been around since the beginning of the podcast. And we used to exchange music, recording CDs, musical ideas, whenever we would see each other and get together, do some listening together over the years. And like a lot of things that happened during the pandemic time when we had not too much else to do and uh, there wasn't right. a chance to play music live or anything like that, really. And Mike had this idea and we sort of springboarded our ongoing conversation into this medium. And here we are. It's still going. And, you know, I think my mind might finally be maturing. <laughs> I hope it's so. been a long time. <laughs> not getting any younger. It's time to get mature. Yeah. Anyway, as Mike mentioned, we're going to have some repeat performers on the recordings. Artists, yeah. I'm, I'm starting to see that there are certain artists I can't let go of here. Yeah. You know? I had the same problem with jazz tonight. So uh, we'll have some familiar names with uh, new recordings. Also, a couple of new surprises, too, because I always have to get a mix of new faces and talents in there that we found out about and get excited about and keep things... Uh, interesting in a variety there. Also, I want to mention uh, in this past week, uh, we had some really nice feedback. We had uh, Christopher Lucas Wilson, who we talked about two episodes ago. He had shared our episode right. with his fans, and he also put up into words. He typed up and put up some of the things we said about his recording. It was really nice to see. Yeah, that was really nice. It was a nice sort of display that he made of it. So thank you, Christopher. Because mm. a Spiral Trio has our sort of review of the recording on their website too and Matthew Motheray in uh, France has us on the press release and so it's always nice to see your words sort of put there in writing by someone else and yeah it makes it seem worthwhile and people appreciate that we listen to the music and also uh, last week we talked about a really fine drummer in the UK Gaz Hughes if you haven't heard his recording Beboptical Illusion <laughs> check that out and great, he shared, great title uh, great title yeah <laughs> he shared our episode there too so thanks to Gaz we're going to hear lots of more great music from him I think and we also have a new classical friend, yeah. Right. We also heard from the uh, contemporary, I should say, pianist and composer. He said his main thing is his is his life as a pianist, Nicolas Sivlev. We did his two symphonies, one and five, and he wrote back to thank us about that. And he also wanted uh, the review or what we said about him. And the thing is, in his case, I sent him my notes. He hasn't, I don't know if he's posted anything yet. I'll have to check. But my notes were all about trying to figure out like what was happening in the symphonies because they're you know, contemporary works and you got to figure right. out what this guy's approach is. So they're all kind of, oh, this happened, then this happened. I hope he can pull something out of that. There is a summary at the end though right. of what I thought. So, But he got in touch with us too and hes uh, we may ha have an interview coming up with him. Well, that'd be interesting. Yeah, he's he said he's up for it. Yeah, but we'll have to schedule it and see how that turns out. He was he was he was really uh, very uh, very nice, and I'm gonna yeah. have to listen to some of his piano recordings now. Yeah, I want to hear some more. I want to hear those other symphonies too. Yeah, he said he composes on the side, and those were two pretty gigantic works. Yeah, it seems were. to me that he puts a lot of time into it. You know, 
there, he's got six symphonies. I don't think that's a side project when you have six symphonies, but <laughs> he says it is. So. He's just being modest. Go. But um, yeah, yeah, definitely want to hear the other ones and also hear some of his piano performances as well. Yeah, so dig those out. Well, I'll recommend those to the listeners now just to see what you think. You know, Nicolas Sivlev's piano performances. All right, before we get into some of the music this evening, we've got a lot of interesting things, and Mike's got an opera for us here to uh, talk about. Oh, as man. Well. <laughs> that, that took all week. Uh, it, it was great, but I have to say, it took a lot of work you know, to I kind bet. of. I mean, I could have just sat back in the chair and enjoyed it and said, wow, what a powerful opera this is. But I had to kind of sort of think of something to say about it. And man, it took a lot of work because I was trying to work out what was happening. We'll get to that, though. That'll be my third. Before we get rolling into all of that music, though, I want to remind everyone that in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to talk about. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. We can get all the music in one place on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform. You can also follow us there at our username, Adult Music Podcast. You can get the playlists and podcasts all in one place. And if you can't see the full description or the recording list isn't clear on your app, like it doesn't show up really well on Deezer, even though we like Deezer a lot. You can yeah. always come over to our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. All the links and everything is spaced out and easy to see there. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a friend, too. Uh, word of mouth gets us new listeners who are really into music that we discuss, mostly classical music and jazz. And if you just take a moment, make a ranking or write a review, that also helps us get listed in the recommendations for music categories, and then we can grow our audience that way as well. And please do come and follow us on our Facebook page. We're growing little by little there. You can get extra info, interaction with the artists, as I mentioned. We get some feedback and comments throughout the week. And I put up a lot of new releases, and Mike's been sharing more classical things as well, so you can yeah. stay on top of all new recordings throughout the week. You can leave a message or comment there, see some of our photos, hence some mugs on these two guys with faces for radio <laughs> on this podcast here. And if you want to contact us directly, with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Be sure to respond. Shoot us an email at adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And before we get into the music, we want to recommend a few other music-related podcasts, share our audiences with each other. We've got Something Came From Baltimore from Tom Gauker. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast. Famous Interviews in Neon Jazz by Joe Domino, who interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard, Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Abra look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week, and they play little bits from each version and discuss the history of the original and those different versions. So a good one for jazz musicians and jazz fans to get deeper into the music. Yeah, and in fact, I'm following that one now, so... I, oh, cool. I haven't actually heard an episode yet, but I am curious to hear what they're going to talk about. So Yeah. So those links will be at the end of the description, and at the end of this podcast, we'll have little promo spots from each one of those. If you stay on to the end, you can check those out as well. Indeed. All right. Well, I spent the whole week uh, in my easy chair, you know, with my brandy snifter in hand, <laughs> listening to all these new classical recordings. I want to say to listeners, brandy is the best drink to be sipping at while you're listening to classical music. If you get that right buzz, it just puts you in the perfect place to just have the music mm. just elevate your spirits. It's really amazing, but you have to kind of balance it right. You know, you don't want to get drunk doing this. You just want to get that nice buzz and then listen yeah. to the music will take you the rest of the way. So I was 
floating around in heaven all week long. It was really great. I heard some great recordings too. Some of them I posted about on Facebook. You can check there to see what they are. And we may talk about them a little bit on the podcast yeah. in the future. We'll have to see. Oh, we should mention too, the uh, new Renitsky came ah, out this week too. Volume right. five. We'll be covering yeah. that soon. And we've got the scores from Daniel Bernardson. So when we go to listen to it, we can watch the notes fly by on the page. That'll be we fun. We can. Yeah. Okay. Except that on my tiny computer screen, <laughs> I can't really <laughs> fit the whole score. Yeah, yeah it's hard. They got to print those out in that giant paper that they use. But uh, yeah, that's that's good to have. Anyway, we'll be getting to that soon. We are committed to bringing you Renisky. And I want to say something else about Renisky. Presto Music in England picked that as one of their albums of the week. So oh, I guess cool. um, Renisky is uh, making his uh, mark now. People are starting to Great. notice this uh, Naxos set of uh, recordings. I think that might have happened after the. Um, yeah, last year's like Harmonia Mundi release. Right. Like suddenly he's on the radar and now they've picked Great. this one as one of the recordings of the week. Yeah, so Daniel will be really happy about that. Yeah. Yeah, Renitsky's coming back into he's coming into style really for the first time <laughs> since he was alive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway, we said uh we're talking about old friends. What that what that means is that we pick artists that we've talked about before on this podcast. And the first artist that I have here is Patricia Kopachinskaya on violin. Now um this is, I think this is the fifth or sixth time we're <laughs> must be. talking about her. I think it might be the sixth time. The thing about her is she's what I think of as a real artist. She takes real chances with her playing, with her programming, and sometimes it doesn't really work. So you really don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> she's a fantastic, magnetic player. So I'm always interested to hear her. And I think I, I tend to, these days, I tend to sample it and say, well, should we talk about this one or not? You know, but so far... The last three have been really fantastic, including this one. This is uh, Janacek, Brahms, and Bartok, Sonatas for Violin and Piano. It's Patricia Kopachinskaya on violin, and she's accompanied by... Okay, how do we say this guy's name? He's Turkish. Fazil Say would be the Turkish way to say it. But the French say Fazil Say, as I guess English people would too. So I guess this is one of those cases where you can choose your pronunciation. I'll pick Say because he's... Turkish, and I just want to stick with his uh, the way he grew up hearing right. his name. Okay, so I'll do that. Anyway, so that means my, my last name would be Vezudo and not Vezuto, which I actually prefer, but because <laughs> <laughs> it's very musical. I like just musical things. Okay, this is on the Alpha label. The booklet note, I have the CD of this. The booklet note consists of a, and I put this in quotations, conversation uh, between the two performers, but it's kind of a sort of stilted conversations where one person can't say enough good things about the other person. Oh, you're so amazing. No, you're amazing. <laughs> it, it kind of came across like that. <laughs> they they kind of compliment each other ad nauseum. We can hear that. We don't really need to know that they think each other is great. Otherwise, they wouldn't be playing with each other if they didn't, <laughs> would they? Anyway, they do go into the, the three uh, works a bit. What Kopachinskaya says about the Janacek piece is really interesting. This is the first one we're going to hear. Uh, she says, the middle movement sounds like a foreign element. And in fact, it was composed first and the rest of the uh, sonata was completed after a long break. Hmm. She calls the entire sonata together concentrated and wounded. Yeah, I could hear that. And hmm. she says, Janacek composed speech melodies that speak and scream unbearably. Speech melodies. Want to keep that in mind. I was kind of listening for that and I really did hear it because... Hmm. Um, the um, themes for the violin, they're not as melodic as they are phrase-like, you know, and they, they are telling sort of a story without words. She also calls some of its elements, I like her choice of adjectives here, fierce, sick, and abnormal. 
Hmm. Interestingly, people have used the same words to describe me at certain times, but <laughs> we'll, we'll skip that for now. That's from my other podcast, Mike Bears His Soul to Unwilling <laughs> Listeners. So you'll have to tune into that one to hear that part. Anyway, let's get on to the recording. Tracks one through four, Leos Janacek's Sonata for Violin and Piano. There's no key given. Uh, first movement, by the way, uh, Patricia Kopachinskaya kind of abbreviates her last name as Pat, and it also happens to be her first name. And I refer to her a lot, so I'm going to just call her Pat. So when I say Pat, I'm talking about Kopachinskaya, okay? Because that's a long name to say over and over. Yes. Okay, anyway, so she's Pat, let's say, starts digging deep on her opening violin theme. This is always very promising for me because I really like that digging in tone, even on the cello and viola and other string instruments too. The theme she plays over the repeating rumbling piano chords is from deep in the heart and has a full heavy tone. There's a lot of, uh, there's a borscht-like quality to the heaviness. <laughs> this is going to keep you warm all winter long. Okay. <laughs> sigh, or say if you like, but I'll say sigh. Fazil Sigh gets a full deep tone as well from the piano. And I should say right away, this is a great sounding recording, fully picking up the depth of tone, even in the piano's quietest passages. Now, there's something a little odd about the recording, too, though. Kopachinskaya, who I'm going to call Pat, is panned to the left side, or she's standing on the left side, and that mic picked her up. And the piano is almost fully on the right side. Now, there is a little bleed to the other channel. It doesn't sound like they're just contained in this one speaker, but um, you can hear her on the left. And it's kind of odd because you have this gigantic piano on the right side, and then there's her on the left. Now, this has the effect of that when Sai plays really loudly, Pat is always fully audible, you know, even during loud passages. And this is one way to solve it. But if you're listening in headphones, it's just, it feels really weird to have like, you know, each one yeah. instrument in each ear. It worked really well on um, her um, Sol and Pat recording with uh, Sol Gabetta on the cello. Right. Because you'd expect them to be in different channels, more or less, because they'd be on different parts of the stage. But uh, here it's a little odd because the piano is such a big instrument. So anyway, listen for that. It's kind of interesting. And it the dynamics work well, let's just say. And the sound quality is fantastic. But I just thought it was kind of an odd decision. Mm. If uh, someone wants to write to us and talk about that, I'd be really interested to hear other people's opinions on that, especially if any, anyone who was involved in the recording, maybe even the artists themselves. There's um, full-blooded, deep red wine in the playing from both players. Very passionate performance. Even passages like the sparse one in a minute and 55 seconds in the piano come across with a depth we don't often hear. Uh, the sensitivity between the two players at 2 minutes and 27 seconds is touching too. The work sounds conversational. We don't get long singing melodies, but brief phrases played by one player that the other responds to. And these two are really listening to each other too, which just makes the whole conversational element of this come alive. Listen to the passion in the high notes that uh, Pat gets at 3 minutes and 20 seconds around that time. Every time she plays, she gets a full-blooded sound dug from deep in the instrument and, quite frankly, from deep in herself. Excellent performance here. This might be one of the better, the best performances I've ever heard of this movement. But that whole idea of like the violin in the left channel, the piano in the right channel kind of gives me a few reservations. You might want to hear it recorded a bit differently, you know, but, and there are other good performances of this too, but this is really fantastic and really fully felt. The second movement, Balada, this is the one that she says was composed earlier and sounds different, comes across like more of a song and it, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's in the same idiom 
as the first movement. It's more song-like and really more traditional. Um, it's melodic in the violin and the piano accompanies. Pat is songful and melodic here, and Sai gets a warm sound out of his chords. At about the 52nd mark, we get a new theme in the violin, which the piano sensitively comments on. It's fantastic duo playing. I'm, I'm already hooked. I was hooked in the first movement. And I'm really looking forward at this point also to the next two pieces, which I really love. The Anacek piece, I like, but the other two are real, really big favorites of mine. A rather hopeful passage is heard from the minute and 25 second mark. There's extremely sensitive playing all the way through the movement. And listen from 2 minutes and 30 seconds to just after the 3 minute mark for some well-balanced, sensitive playing. The piano sound, which is forte from around 3 minutes and 50 seconds, is extremely well caught on the recording, fully dimensional. And Pat gets an appealingly thin tone on her high note at the very end. It's kind of wispy and intentionally so. Okay, thin is usually a word to uh, use to disparage violinists, but I, what I mean is something like highly sensitive and kind of wispy mm. here. The third movement, Allegretto, comes across as a folk-like dance, uh, while the violin slashes downward glissandos. <laughs> it's, and the, the, the attack is really very um, hard on the, uh, with the bow. It comes across as conversational, and dramatically so, in this performance. I like the way both performers are so committed to their particular interpretation. Just after the first minute, we hear from some sweet, full-toned, double-stopped chords from Pat. They come across beautifully. Uh, this is a departure from the opening folk theme, a B section. Then in a minute and 54 seconds, we hear the opening A section again. The fourth movement, oddly, is an adagio. This is the last movement. You'd usually end with something a little more kind of rhythmically, mm. you know, vivacious or something. But this ends with an adagio. It has a mildly agitated opening with the violin hiccuping and settling. Then the main theme starts shyly in the violin at about the one minute mark. We hear a repeat of all of this material immediately afterwards. The opening agitated theme goes into a buildup on the piano, which the violin takes over, over trilling chords in the piano, heard at the four minute mark. The trilling material goes into a decrescendo and we're back at the opening hiccuping theme in the violin and the music quietly dissipates for the ending and that's the end of the piece. Tracks five through eight are Brahms's, um, Johannes Brahms's Sonata for Violin and Piano, number three in D minor, opus 108. Brahms wrote all three of his violin sonatas towards the end of his life, not quite at the end, but sort of in the uh, 18, I think it was the mm. 1880s, and he died in the 1890s. That's not really towards the end of his life. He still had 10 years left. Anyway, this is um, the third one, and uh, it's in four movements, and starts Allegro, played quickly and very quietly by Pat with Sai sensitive to her sound and keeping his sound down. Pat practically sighs her melody out of the instrument here. It's a little quick, though. The tempo is a little fast, I thought, and I think you lose a little feeling in that. The piano thunders its chords for the bridge to the second theme, which we hear at a minute and 16 seconds. The piano plays it first, then the violin with piano accompaniment. Uh, this performance is very alive and not very traditional in approach. The performers are letting the inspiration of the moment dictate the phrasing. In the second minute, the development section starts. Well, when I say that, it's not like jazz. I mean, I'm sure they've planned something out, but it kind of, there's a little, they managed to put across the, um, a sort of spontaneity mm -hmm. while they're playing. And uh, one is listening to the other and he's going to mimic that. Well, not mimic or respond to that style. He's not just going to read from the score. 
In the second minute, the development section starts. At the three minutes and 35 second mark, we hear the opening theme again. Again played quickly but melodically and with nuance and phrasing by Pat. The bridge section thunders out of the piano again in the fourth minute. The second theme is heard at five minutes and nine seconds. There's a coda involving the opening theme at the sixth minute. In the second movement, Adagio, Pat says she hears this movement like someone whispering in her ear, and she plays it that way. She has a light touch on the bow and some light vibrato on every note. There's a great descending double stop passage at two minutes and 54 seconds that actually sounds full of emotion in Pat's hands. Sensitive ending to this glowing movement. So listen, think about that. Someone whispering in your ear. Not me, though. Because <laughs> that would be creepy. <laughs> Un poco presto e consentimento is the marking on the third movement. This is taken by the piano with a lighter touch. When it's Pat's turn, she brushes the theme out of the violin. Attacks are soft on both instruments, and Pat gets her own unique phrasing out of every line. So this is a really unique performance of this violin sonata. Sai is very present as well in his playing. These two are just fantastic together, and they mm. have recorded together before. Kind of wish they'd do it more often, though. Um, you're always aware of Sai, even if not focusing on him in accompanying passages. The fourth movement, Presto Agitato, starts with thundering chords from the piano. Asai gets an appealing full sound out of these chords without making them sound like they're crashing. And Pat is always easy to hear, even in louder passages. And there are a lot of them in this movement. It's a pretty loud movement. Listen at about a minute and 50 seconds for that. Great recording. Again, I guess I should repeat. I think at about two minutes and 10 seconds, we're hearing the same thing that Pat called a sinister and displaced theme conjuring up the image of dead souls wafting over a cemetery. Um, that description reminds me of <laughs> Chopin's uh, second piano sonata, fourth movement. Anyway, she describes that. She's, she's very imaginative in her description and then also in her playing. It carries over, which I'm happy to say. The section is very brief and explodes into familiar material afterwards. That's at the two minute and 10 second mark. The doubled lines in the beginning of the fourth minute are actually exciting here. The duo's ability to keep together at that speed and even build up tension in the perfectly judged crescendo is really thrilling. This leads to an exciting approach to the final chord, and the duo are most audibly of one mind and one body in this movement. It's really a fantastic musical performance. All right, Maybe not the best recording of this ever. You know, There are more traditional approaches, but this, one, this is really... Um, a special one to hear just for the performance itself, if not the getting to the heart of the piece or something like that. They're really going for something unique and to themselves. Okay, we get a little bit of a challenge. Last, Bela Bartok, Sonata for Violin and Piano Number 1, Opus 21. I think this is Zekali 75. I hope uh, I've read that the right way. And BB84, if anyone's looking this up. So Bela Bartok wrote two sonatas for violin and piano, and they're both really rough on the ear. They're kind of hard to follow. He uses a lot of um, paprika in this, uh, a lot of spice, a lot of eastern spicy harmonies in this piece and in Sonata Number 2, which is not on this album. They're long movements and they're kind of hard to follow too. They don't really operate the way a sonata would or maybe they do and I just didn't follow it. But it's a three movement work. The first movement is Allegro Appassionato. There are arpeggios on the piano with that Bartok signature, a really harsh note on the violin that starts it out. And it's just really cool. I just like the way it starts. You know, you hear that romantic kind of 
you know, rolling arpeggio on the piano. And then this note that really doesn't sound, feel like it sounds there from the violin. And you're like, oh, here we go. The violin gets a lot of the against the harmony notes to play as the piano remains harp-like for a lot of the opening. The directions in this movement go in are rather hard to describe with certain moods morphing into others. So it's, it's not like this section, then this section, then this section. They sort of um, elide, as we say. I said morph into others. When Sai plays thundering chords, as at the three-minute mark, the violin is always clear. And I like uh, Pat's characterization at the four-minute mark. She draws attention to certain elements that make this rather difficult piece easier to listen to as does Psy. They actually kind of, they don't soften it, but they make it more appealing through their, I guess their phrasing and their understanding of um, the idiom. Mm. Um, I pulled out a lot of elements in this piece that I hadn't heard before. Psy's chiming chords at the four minute and 40 second mark draw the ear in with their lightness. The whole passage from that point through the next few minutes are quiet and mysterious with intriguing quiet tones from both violin and piano. At the seven minute and 50 second mark, Pat plays a brief rushing sul ponticello uh, that's pretty electrifying. Um, I like that sound a lot, bowing on the bridge where the, uh, where the um, strings attached to the bridge at the back of the violin. At 8 minutes and 50 seconds, the rushing arpeggios in the piano and the feather-like tone on the high notes of the violin produce an ear-inviting sound. There are a lot of these types of things in the movement. And this is really the performers doing this because the score itself can be very harsh. I've heard other players play this. I'll leave you to find them, though. Uh, They generally happen once and aren't heard again. Listen to the lightness of the violin at 10 minutes and 22 seconds, where it approaches the inaudible range but can always be heard. And the movement finally peters out at the 13-minute and 5-second mark. That's a very long movement. (laughs) And there's still two more that are about the same length coming up. But I have to say, this um, movement and this performance invites a re-listening almost right away because you heard all these details and they just don't really go together. You want to get that form in your head and just I just wanted to listen to this over and over again and try to figure that out. The second movement, Adagio, starts in the violin with a very quiet tone playing folk music inflected themes or one theme slowly. The odd notes would indicate the folk music influence. This is beautifully and appealingly articulated, sounding a bit mysterious and nocturnal. This is also one of the uh, styles that Bartok was famous for composing in what he calls his night music. It's usually got light strings and it's really sort of ethereal sounding. Uh, That's what this sounds like a little bit. The piano comes in at about a minute and 25 seconds with a feather light attack on the chords. He plays an upward moving chorale-like chord pattern with modal harmony that reminds me of Debussy who Bartok knew about and admired. Um, The violin plays melodic material over these chords, and the mysterious quiet sounds continue throughout the opening until about the 4 minutes and 40 second mark when a slow crescendo begins, building on a repeating chord. It dissipates in the 5th minute, then builds up more quickly into the 6th minute, attenuates again, and one more try at the 6 minute and 20 second mark, but again, a quick decrescendo. So we get like three sort of crescendo hills, shall we say from about 4.40 to 6.20. And the movement is off to new material after that, mostly quiet violin playing over equally quiet piano chords. This very mysterious movement ends with the material it opens with. The third movement is an allegro, and it's full of aggressive folk dances. You can hear the rhythm and the changing meter of the Hungarian folk dances is in there. Hard to, hard to follow, but I guess if you're dancing to it, you would know what it was. 
interspersed with some lighter folk dances too. There's an opening flourish, then a Hungarian folk dance rhythm and melody, sounding aggressive and circular. The circularity also indicates like the dance quality, with syncopated accents in the piano. A new section of the dance, equally aggressive, starts in the second minute. The piano is given some pretty impressive virtuoso rippling lines to play, followed by equally impressive wild double-stopped lines in the violin. At 3 minutes and 37 seconds, the piano thunders out a new dance, rough sounding with harsh chords. Sai actually manages to get a good sound out of this as the violin goes into a sort of rustic sound. You know, not that smooth, glossy tone, but something a little more rough sounding. Pat draws hard on the bow to get this sound. There are lyrical interludes on occasion, but mostly we have that syncopated folk dance rhythm in the piano. In the seventh minute, the violin gets a sort of cadenza, or a solo dance perhaps. The dance rhythms have changed several times in the movement, and the last one, heard in the eighth minute, is aggressive and highly syncopated. A lighter dance is heard in the ninth minute. I guess that wasn't the last one, (laughs) but the last heavy (laughs) rhythm, I guess. There's a lighter dance in the ninth minute, after which the violin does a solo crescendo. And the music starts aggressively and virtuosically whirling to the thrilling final chord, which isn't a full tonic, so you don't really get that sense of rest at the end. It's an excellent performance. This is a, a wow, and probably the recording to hear of this particular work. Again, you have the violin in the left channel that may bother some people on the piano on the right. Anyway, the thing about this recording that's so great is that both players have an amazing sensitivity to each other. And that's what makes this album special. Whenever you have that, it's it's just unmissable, no matter what the performers are playing. They're certainly unique and sensitive in their interpretation and should be heard for that reason. The performances brought me some new insights into the works, such as the shape and dance rhythms of the Bartok Sonata and the conversational quality of the opening movement of Janacek's Sonata. The album features the most appealing performance of the rather difficult Bartok first violin sonata that I've heard, I'd say that if you like chamber music, you have to hear this. Patricia Kopachenskaya's albums can be hit or miss, um, but this one hits squarely. Yeah, I like this one a lot, mostly for the synergy and the way that they just meld together so well. I thought the Janacek is the most subtle of the three pieces. Mm-hmm. I was kind of drawn into it, especially the middle movement. I enjoyed it a lot. The Brahms is kind of a unique performance. I've heard this in a few other recordings, but I thought it was really well done. And I liked uh, Kopachinskaya's excellent tone throughout the recording. You know that sometimes I have yeah. a, a weakness for violin recordings. There's a little bit of uh, you know squeaky edge in the Bartok, but it's supposed to be there. But otherwise, I like I th- that though. I like yeah, that sound. That's I thought thing. her tone was uh, really warm and uh, well-rounded through all of the works. But I was impressed, and I used the same word, sensitivity of Say's playing. I just thought that he was following her closely, and his attention to dynamics throughout all the pieces was just astounding. And, you know, the technical things just are smooth as butter there, too. And, yeah, the bar talk, (laughs) that can be uh, tough to get through. I think we were talking about it during the week, and I said, it's like I order a, you know, a Caesar salad, and I get this plate of like kale and endive, and it's all this bitter stuff yeah, that you go through. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> I kind of liked it, and I especially like the final movement for the energetic dance rhythms in the movement, and there's really interesting piano chords, the harmony in there, especially at the end, is kind of uh, intriguing. And I was like, Bartok's harmonic sense and ideas. So at the end, when I got to the end, I thought, oh, that was pretty good after all. You know, we talked last week about um, 
Judge Kurtak, right? And how um, Hungarian children are really East European children, I guess, to an extent. Grow up, you know, they use his music as on the piano as like to study pieces, mm. and they grow up with these Hungarian folk dances as though they're just, you know, they're bread and butter. Sort of their um, this is the way music sounds, right? And it's so I don't want to say foreign to arias, but it's sort of sounds very you know, like modern or edgy. Mm. Uh, to our ears and yet to them that's kind of what music sounds like so they're very they have very different ears than we do and i kind of envy them for that yeah. i have to say interesting you know i was, I was talking to a, a japanese friend who um one of the, one of the things that absolutely infuriates me is when somebody tells me they don't like mozart because uh that's like they're saying you know i don't have any ear at all basically <laughs> But what she said is uh, he's too he's too tonal. Like she's describing him like he's Philip Glass in the his, in Glass's early days when he had those repeating kind of clean, pure sort of um, chords and stuff. But I sent her the um, Olafsson recording because it has the well, all those darker key pieces oh, right, and gets right. more and more dark as it goes on. And I think I changed her mind. She's oh. <laughs> she's uh, now an admirer of Mozart. She thought it was all just pretty. Oh. And and plenty of it is because he wrote a lot of music for sure, uh, to be yeah. played in the background at like dinner parties or whatever or whatever they did then feasts. But um, he he had a dark soul in him, and I think that's why we like his music so much. To be honest though, with Mozart, I like the the more cheerful music with the dark edges hmm. to it. On our Facebook site, uh, listeners might want to check this out. There's I put up a brief video of Sting describing the bridge in popular music, how the bridge is disappearing from a lot of popular songs and how it leads to a new motion. You, you should see it. He explains it. But I like the Mozart pieces that do that, where they'll have like, he'll use all these little devices like open cadences or false cadences to just lead to some new unexpected emotion and a sort of healing that, that comes right. with that. And that's, those are my favorite Mozart pieces. Examples? Any of the the late string quartets do that, and uh, his um, Divertimento K five sixty three. I think the second movement, the slow movement, has a lot of wonderful, really deep hearted emotions. So if you want to check those out, hmm. look them up. There, there's lots more. I just picked two out of the blue, <laughs> you know, a bunch of pieces out of the blue there. Anyway, on to album number two, Eclipse from Hilary Hahn on the violin. This is another artists who we really like and who we seem to um, talk about a lot. She's doing quite a few adventurous recordings these days, um, and this is one of them. Here she's with the Frankfurt Radio Symphony, conducted by Andres Orozco Estrada, and this is on the Deutsche Grammophon label. The works on this album are about as linked as this uh, current podcast episode is. <laughs> we, don't, we just have <laughs> these familiar artists on it. They, they don't seem to have any relation to each other at all, these works. Beyond the fact that they're all works for solo violin and orchestra, um, the notes claim that the program also features the idea that each composer maintained a connection to some musical geographical center despite long periods away from their homes. That's just okay. a historical fact. I don't know that mm -hmm. that... You know, it may show up in the music a bit, but you wouldn't really know that by listening. Anyway, in her note in the CD booklet, Hilary Hahn writes that the last few years, meaning the pandemic years, and this project, this Eclipse project, changed her life forever. Uh, she overcame a confidence crisis brought on by not playing live for three years. Oh, interesting. Mm. Yeah, like uh, I think like um, any musician, you need to be out in front of people playing all the time. Otherwise, I guess... Your confidence just goes away, or your your ability. The album is called Eclipse, 
And I would guess to refer to the three years of silence and the shifting of the light that caused. That's what sort of what she says in the booklet. Mm. In her note, Han says that artistic evolution is often set in motion by an event that challenges perceptions and shifts the light. And an eclipse, after all, leads to illumination. And that's kind of what she's after with the title. We should think about a title like that for this episode <laughs> or some so, you know, describing some abstract thing. Anyway, this starts with a work that you would think people would know, but they don't. And I don't really know it very well either. Hmm. Antonin Dvorak's Violin Concerto in A Minor, Opus 53. Dvorak is one of the most famous uh, composers who ever lived. He was uh, Czech, what we would call Czech today. I think back then he would have been called Bohemian. Dvorak is really famous for his cello concerto. It's his right. big popular work that all cellists play. But he has this violin concerto, and he also has a piano concerto that we also never hear. And they're not as well known. Anyway, here we get the violin concerto, and this is going to be fun because um, Dvorak's got great melodies. Now, he originally wrote this for um, Brahms's pal, Yosef Joachim, who was a great uh, violin soloist at the time. But Joachim, although he um, advised Dvorak on the piece, never played it. Or he, he didn't play the premiere at least. That mm -hmm. went to somebody else. So I guess he missed out. The first movement, let's get into this piece. Allegro ma non troppo, quasi moderato, and then it ends with an attacca. So this movement attaches to the second movement, which is very unusual. Beethoven famously attached the second movement to the third movement in his violin concerto, but uh, attaching the first two movements is a little bit of an odd hmm. trick here. Anyway, but Dvorak does that. Anyway, we have vivid sound on the opening. I love the way Hans' violin tone matches the chord we just heard from the orchestra on her entry. It's pretty magical. Yeah, give that a listen right at the beginning when she comes in. Mm. There's a sweet high note at 44 seconds. Han has a fantastic tone. It's usually very big and wide. And um, she gets a sweet singing tone throughout. Like great violinists like this, like the top tier, are always able to get this beautiful singing tone. And Han is one of those. She's very traditional in that way. But she's also full of a lot of other tricks as well. So she's not just your standard top tier violinist. Mm. She's really someone very unique. Full of emotion on the singing tone. Uh, listen to the repeated phrases at a minute and 10 seconds. Uh, she has gorgeous high notes at the end of the phrases, too. Her entries are crisp and sudden, like she just kind of explodes in to the uh, line. And she puts across a fine sense of the rhythm of her lines. That's important, by the way, because rhythm... It, when you're playing melody, you can tend to kind of forget the rhythm. But no, she's got that outlined very clearly mm. in the way she shapes her lines. She has a beautifully full, quiet tone at 3 minute and 51 second mark, too. There's a repeat of the main thematic material. Then at 6 minutes and 46 seconds, we're into the quasi-moderato section, led into by a perfectly realized retard from the orchestra. Retard is slowing down. It's an Italian word. As you might expect, the solo material is highly melodic and catchy because it's Dvorak. So I wonder why this work isn't better known than it is. Why haven't violinists yeah. taken this up? We'll have to ask somebody one day. Dramatic tension builds up in the eight, into the eighth minute, which winds down after eight minutes and ten seconds. There's a dramatic approach to the main theme recapitulation, which begins at about the nine minute and twenty second mark. After the quiet melody leaves off in the eleventh minute, there's a pause, then a slow lyrical introduction that leads directly to the second movement. And this is really surprising if you don't know it's coming. Second movement is the slow movement, Adagio ma non troppo. Uh, the opening melody is pretty simple, a steadily rising then falling theme. 
But Han injects it with life and breath through her tone, vibrato, and phrasing. The orchestra warmly takes over at 2 minutes and 13 seconds. Then there's a passionate double-stopped outburst at 2 minutes and 23 seconds by the violin. The tension calms, then heightens, and by 3 minutes and 32 seconds calms again, after which the violin plays a decorated version of the opening theme. It seems that with the exception of the orchestral solo at 2 minutes and 13 seconds, the violin is constantly playing throughout the movement. The solo lines are mostly lyrical, and just before the sixth minute, the orchestra introduces a more urgent section, which the solo violin responds to with a dancing theme. We're back to the more lyrical playing of the opening by 8 minutes and 30 seconds. It winds down to a beautiful, quiet tone with the calming ending chords. Han just playing with this beautiful tone throughout. Um, I have to say... In the booklet note, she talks about how, oh, she had lost confidence and stuff. But this is almost like a new player. There's like really deep, a, a real sense of life in every phrase that she plays and really deeply felt playing in the melodies and in an understanding of the score. This is really fantastic playing. Han has always been a great player when she's been before the public. But I think this is on another level for her. Okay. Anyway, the third movement finale Allegro giocoso, ma non troppo. This is a rondo with two versus three beat accents on the main theme. One of Dvorak's catalog of highly appealing themes with strong dance rhythms reinforcing it in the ear. The first departure from the rondo theme is underway by a minute and 30 seconds. At two minutes and 20 seconds, we're hearing a two beat dance rhythm accompanying the violin's dance. This long passage ends at three minutes and 26 seconds. I think the two beat dances are called a dumka, if I'm if I understand this correctly, uh, I'm not too familiar with those dances from Eastern Europe. This long passage ends with 3 minutes and 26 seconds when we hear the rondo theme in the high violin range. And again, with very quiet double stops after 3 minutes and 50 seconds. Fantastic playing and tone throughout this piece. At the 4 minutes and 17 second mark, there's a second departure from the rondo theme. Also with a strong dance profile. At the 5 minutes and 7 second mark, the violin's note values double building incitement and tension. So it's almost like a like a rubber band has been let go and like everything is, is <laughs> at double speed now. It's a pretty cool effect. That's at five minutes and seven seconds. But you have to be listening before that to get the effect. At six minutes and 12 seconds, the rondo theme returns, this time with the violin playing its line in the lower range and with agitated style. Then back into the high end for the repeat. There's a third departure from the rondo theme that's figuration heavy, leading to a triplet dance melody. At the 9 minute and 18 second mark, the main theme comes in with a flute playing the theme as the solo violin plays accompanying figuration. At 9 minutes and 45 seconds, we hear a variation on the theme in double stopped harmony. There's a lot of virtuosity leading to the exciting end of the violin's line and up to the last dramatic chord. This is a deeply satisfying performance with exemplary violin playing. Han keeps the ear trained on the violin throughout the 30-plus minutes of this concerto. Okay, we're going to get some contrast now. Uh, the <laughs> next piece is by the Argentinian composer, 20th century Argentinian composer, Alberto Ginastera. Um, Ginastera, <laughs> he's, he's inspired by Bartok, and he has sort of a a funny uh, relationship with music fans. Like some people really like his music and find it exciting. I'm one of those people. And other people find it barbaric and really hate him. <laughs> so you'll have to listen to find out which one you are. But I was really looking forward to this because I've heard other pieces by him. And I had never heard this piece before. This is the first time. Violin Concerto 
Opus 30 is the name of the piece. This starts out with um, a first movement that's divided into uh, several tracks. It's a set of studies for the violin. This goes up to track 11. Tracks 4 through 11 are the first movement, and they separate the separate studies. Um, it starts with a cadenza, and it's pretty dramatic. Um, we don't hear the um, orchestra at all right at the beginning. Loads of double stops. <laughs> the challenge starts right from the beginning in this work. Yeah, for me, Hinostatis harmonic style has a lot of Bartok's harmony in it, and you can hear some of the Bartok edginess here. There's some pretty wild stuff in this 5 minute and 23 second cadenza. <laughs> and Han has the passion and angst to put it all across. She's fantastic here. This is starting out to be a memorable performance, just like the Dvorak. At 3 minutes and 22 seconds, the music quietens a bit, developing into double stops with one note trilling and the other sustained. Clearly, this work was composed so that amateurs will know to stay away from it <laughs> right from the beginning. But I'm pretty hooked. Um, Han's playing is riveting. Yeah, I can just imagine somebody like trying to play through this and just walking away before the orchestra even comes in. <laughs> you know? it's, it sounds really, really hard. But Han really puts it across with a lot of deep passion and really fantastic technical playing as well. It's mostly double stops. Anyway, from track five, we have Studio One, Pergi Accordi, for, I guess, perfect notes or for octaves. I'm not really sure. No, octaves would be Accordi. But in tune things, things that go together. This is a very cool entry by the orchestra, sounding ominous. Uh, there's a rich tone, and the tippity and other percussion register vividly. Yeah, there's percussion in this, by the way, which is often the case in a Hinastera work. The uh, percussion and the tympani hit you in the solar plexus, always a good sign for me. And a subwoofer is just going to make this more pleasurable. Turn it on if you have one and you're listening to this. The bass drum subtly rumbles like distant thunder as the violin plays wild, repeated chords. All right, the second study, per la terza, for thirds. This is in uh, Allegretto. The movement is structured like a set of studies. As I said, the violin plays winding thirds as the orchestra accompanies with light pizzicati in the strings. The violin line is pretty wild and played with substantial abandon to make it exciting. Third, uh, per gli altri intervalli, other intervals. So there are going to be a lot of different intervals in this track seven study. The violin pattern still stays the same, though, as it was in the thirds section. The orchestra sounds are really interesting. Sustained notes on percussion and possibly harmonics too. It sounds spacey or otherworldly. Track eight, study four for arpeggios. A brief pause before this movement, the rapid arpeggios are played by Han as the orchestra plays the atmospheric thematic material. And man, she is on fire on this album. This is these arpeggios really are just, you know, ripped out of the violin. It's just fantastic. Track nine, uh, study five for harmonics, yam armonici. This also starts after a brief pause. It's eerily quiet at the beginning. There's chiming percussion in the accompaniment from the percussion, played very gently. The violin goes into harmonic phrases after the 40-second marks, and it's very pretty and a bit uh, eerie, too. You see, this piece uses a lot of my favorite violin effects, you know, the, the, um, the harmonics, the rapid arpeggios, just all these different sounds. Track 10, this is something that um, Hinastera probably got from Bartok, for um, quarter tones. Quarter tones have always fascinated me. Um, Bartok uses them in his violin concerto on the first movement. 
This starts quietly as well, with atmospheric distant rumblings in the orchestra as the violin plays a wavering tone achieved by sounds like heavy vibrato. And this is where the quarter tones are. The vibrato is so wide that it's going mm -hmm. near the other notes, but not quite getting there. And those would be the quarter tones. That's not the way uh, Bartok does it in his violin concerto. He just, it sounds like it's untuning in his concerto. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, track 11 is the coda. And this comes in dramatically. The violin's line is full-blooded with lots of double stops and vicious attacks on the strings. It ends on a loud chord reached by a crescendo. Track 12, this is the second movement of the violin concerto. It's an adagio for 22 soloists. And this is meant to celebrate the artistry of the New York Philharmonic's principal players in 1963. And they're the ensemble that gave the premiere of this work. I didn't write down who the violinist was at that performance, though. Anyway, it starts very quietly and gently crescendos to a piano. Piano meaning soft, in this case, not the instrument. Harmonics in the orchestra accompany the violin line. There's also a, a, an actual piano playing plunking notes. The music slowly lumbers forward with slow lines. A big crescendo leads to some bombastic chords punctuated by timpani. There's a lot of atmospheric playing from the orchestra, displaying glowing tones and often eerie tones, too. Crescendos in this movement lead to chaotic orchestral playing. Each player is a soloist, as mentioned at the beginning, but then the music suddenly quietens for atmospheric accompaniment to the constantly soloing violin. And the violin really is put through its paces in this movement, too, because while all the other musicians in the orchestra are being highlighted, the violinist is constantly playing. There's a nice segue to a new texture just before the 7 minute and 30 second mark. And what's striking me in this movement is the gentle chiming percussion. It has beautiful glass-like tones, sounds very fragile. The violin is impressive throughout, but to my ear, this movement belongs more to the orchestra. Track 13 is the third movement. This is really the last movement. It's divided into two tracks. Scherzo pianissimo and perpetuum mobile. So the track 13 is the scherzo pianissimo section. It starts with wood percussion making atmospheric sounds as though we're in a rainforest. I love when the orchestras <laughs> bring in the percussion section, so I really took to this right away. Uh, this section of the movement is a scherzo, so it's meant to be playful or outside of the mood of the rest of the concerto. Uh, the violin isn't heard until around the minute and 11 second mark, and when it comes in, it makes similar rainforest-like sounds. I can't even begin to describe the level of virtuosity, control, and creativity that Han is bringing to this piece. It's a real tour de force, and that's a good word for today's performances, tour de force, because we're going to hear another one in the next uh, album that we review, but let's get to that soon. This performance has to be heard. It's really spectacular as far as violin playing goes. It really, all around, it it's really just depends on whether you like the piece or not. I do. This is another section where musical interest is shared between the soloists and the orchestra who produce mesmerizing sounds. In track 14, the Perpetuum Mobile section of um, the third movement, it starts with more conventional drumming with timpani and bass drum included. The violin produces the Perpetuum Mobile, the continuous sort of melody and rhythm, or figuration in rhythm in this case. Han's impressive technique is heard over compelling orchestral sounds, mostly percussive, but not in a steady rhythm. The percussion is more atmospheric. Right at the end, the violin plays a fantastic double-stop perpetual mobile line, and this piece ends thrillingly with loud chords and the violin suddenly ending its line. Okay, so we're going to end with 
Pablo de Sarasat's Carmen Fantasy, Opus 25, an old uh, war horse for uh, violinists. This was played by uh, Yasha Heifetz rather famously, and it's got this deep red-blooded passion to it. But Han doesn't play it this, the way that most violinists play it. She doesn't really play it for show. She plays it more for musicality. And uh, well, let's talk about this. Track 15, Introduction. This very famous set of themes features the violin playing Carmen's melodies, which Han handles with a gorgeous legato line, slightly veiled and smoky. Uh, the tempo is on the slow side, but brings out the Spanish rhythms clearly. I like the sound Han gets on her harmonic line at 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, she's capable of getting this high harmonic, and yet it's just perfectly shaped somehow. It's rounded, even at that high frequency. Track 16 is uh this is really the first part the the first track 15 was an introduction and here we get a moderato this is the famous um amour et en oiseau rebelle aria much recorded by violinists as well as sopranos or mezzo sopranos carmen's a mezzo han goes for a sultry snaking line more seductively slow than full-blooded passion i'm a little surprised this doesn't have the passion that many of the great violinists of the past have given it but that's in her interpretation and not in her playing she's this is the way she's thinking of the piece she's going for a more musical performance shaping the lines and she gets virtuosic at the minute and 58 second mark as we launch into the line decorate it and, and hear it in the harmonics along with occasional pizzicato a great repeated double stopped harmony at the end the movement comes across with more of a sensuality to it than a red-blooded passion now, most violinists will go for this, and they'll, they'll go for the fireworks, and uh, Han doesn't do that. And maybe that's a sign of a more mature musician. But I think the, her inter the interpretation here, though very musical, it kind of lacks the heat that we often get from other violinists, although it's far more musical than a lot of performances I've heard. I have no doubt that Han can bring that heat if she wants to, but I guess after the Hinostera, you had to go another way. <laughs> anyway, part two, Lento Asai. This is a quieter movement and has atmospheric accompaniment. It's got a brief cadenza at the beginning. The melody is taken slowly, then played with light tone in the repeat. The Spanish character comes out in the louder passages. We've heard a lot of harmonic playing from Han, and she gets the same gorgeous full harmonic tone every time she plays these difficult passages. Really fantastic. The third part, Allegro Moderato, this is track 18, has a dance rhythm, and Han has all virtuosic lines here, leaping registers into the highest harmonics. A big wow. And the final movement, track 19. This is Moderato. This is the aria, I don't know what it's called. The tra la 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 la. That one, if you know the opera, which the violin plays with double stops. Here again, Han goes for a lighter approach, perhaps to contrast with the heavier attack in the sudden forte passages. The last minute and 15 seconds has some really spectacular violin pyrotechnics, which Han manages with fire. I think if the devil ever challenged me to a violent duel, I'd ask Han to be my stand-in. And I think she'd definitely win. <laughs> On this evidence, anyway. She's got something now. And I think, it's, I think there's something extra in her playing now that uh, she's back in action after the pandemic. I've heard many of Han's albums. Uh, this one seems to me to be special. She's playing on another level here. The Dvorak and Hinastera both come across as ideal performances, full of passion, and in the Hinastera, all kinds of violent effects perfectly attuned to Hinastera's idiom. Han is spectacular there, but also never upstages the orchestra, who have key parts to play in that work. 
the Sarasate has been recorded many times, and this is a highly impressive performance with fire at the end, but I've heard more red-blooded passion from past violinists. And as I said, I don't think Han is going for that red-blooded passion in this performance. I know she has that fire. Uh, she just chose a different interpretation. This album is absolutely unmissable for fans of violin music, and I thought the Hinesteta was a great discovery. I'd never heard it before, and this is a fantastic performance to hear. I don't think you're, in fact, I don't think you'll hear a better performance than this. I really enjoyed the Dvorak. I thought it was really delightful. What, it's a great piece of music. I don't know, like mm. you say, why isn't it recorded more often? This is just fabulous. Mm. Right from the start, it grabs you and pulls you in, and her playing was fantastic. I'm not as big of a fan of the Hinesteta as you. I, my notes have lots of words like sinister, apocalyptic. Could be. It's like that. I think you have to be in the right mood for this. Yeah, technically, it's really pretty amazing the things that she does. <laughs> what, there. what does it say about me that I'm always in that mood? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to me, I was just... It says not to date me. That's what it says. <laughs> I was basking in the glow of the Dvorak and then I was thrown into this like war movie. Yeah, piece. it was quite a quite a uh, contrast. Yeah. I did enjoy the uh percussion in there though. That sort of uh gave me some other interesting things to listen to. <laughs> All the mm -hmm. uh, kind of rough other things that happen in there. I'll have to give it another shot. It was my first time to hear this piece and it was a bit uh jarring to me. Uh, if I'm in that kind of uh aggressive mood I might enjoy it. Yeah, the Sarasate, I mean, this Carmen music is just, you know, everyone knows these melodies. And I thought, I just wrote, uh, played with great flair uh, right from the beginning of the introduction with the, those really high notes. And I, I like the way she phrased it. As you say, I don't think, uh, I don't want to say she's holding back, but I got more of a musicality and a sense of great phrasing from it rather than a show-off kind of performance. And I like that. Uh, anyway, so it was a nice uh, way to end the program. Yeah, really well done. As a you know musician, if you're not out there in front of people playing, uh, right. that does sort of uh, get you out of your element a little bit. And maybe right. that's what she's talking about with live performances, but certainly her playing ability and then uh, in the studio like this is only seems to be getting better from the releases we've heard. So yeah, this sounds fully confident and uh, real masterful playing. You know, um, she she mentions in her booklet note that she was in Frankfurt in her hotel practicing the Hinesteta with the windows open. And people like <laughs> shouted kind of nasty things to her from the street because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like it. Anyway, they they appreciated the Dvorak though, when she was practicing mm. that. Anyway, by the way, just for listeners who are more, more literary, as I am too, there's a book by um, Louis de Berniers. He's a British... Um, writer. And in his book, I think it's, I hope this is right, The Troublesome Offspring of Cardinal Guzman, he goes into a thing about South American composers and uh, is rather insulting toward Hinastera's music. At least the characters are in the book. Um, <laughs> they say it's barbaric and he's often called that, but I think that's what draws me to it. You know, I think uh, he takes after Bartok in a way. Well, I do have to say, I, I talk about this with people sometimes, you know, music can express uh, any kind of emotion. Right. Uh, usually, you know, we go for the kind of common expressions of joy or happiness or then sorrow, but we don't often get a piece that, you know, really just gets pure angst or <laughs> kind of anger. And it sort of makes you a little bit uncomfortable. There's not too many styles of music. Certainly classical music does this sometimes. But when you get a piece that seems to be really focused on some sort of, uh, I don't want to call it negative energy, but there's certainly a real 
sort of. I don't think it's negative. I think it's aggressive energy. Yeah, aggressive kind of uh, really cranked up in in the way that this is uh, written too. Yeah, you have to be kind of prepared for that. But I mean, it's a valid kind of expression, and uh, maybe he was just good at writing that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I guess the Bartok influence. He um, he also wrote. There's a one of my favorite Hinastera pieces is his harp concerto. And in this piece, he specifically set out to take the harp out of the hands of the angels. Like he wanted to like change its profile right. and make it a more rhythmic instrument. Now it's a little too pretty to be really right, kind of yeah. aggressive, but it's a really cool piece, and I recommend that listeners give it a listen because it is rather unique as in the harp repertoire. Mm. And if you ever get to hear a live performance of it, that can be problematic because the balances are a little odd. He didn't really figure out. The balance between the very loud orchestral parts and the, the sound the harp mm. can produce, the level of sound. But on recordings, it always sounds great because you can isolate the harp and sort of change the uh, right. balance in the studio. Okay, the last one. Speaking of tours de force, oh man, uh, we have a really great performance here. This is an opera. It's a one-woman opera by Poulenc, La Voix Humaine. And this is... um. Véronique Jean, the soprano, who I've been an admirer of for about 20 years now. I've been listening to a lot of her recordings. She's got a very appealing kind of light voice, generally speaking. But here, she shows a lot of range in emotions, as she has to. She's accompanied here by the Orchestre National de Lille, conducted by Alexandre Bloch. And this is on the Alpha label. Last week, we talked about uh, Stephen Huff's string quartet, right? It's uh, dedicated to each uh, to a member of Le Six. And here we have an opera by one of those uh, members of Le Six, uh, Francis Poulenc. The text that is being sung here is made up of a one-act monodrama by Jean Cocteau. Now, I'm a big fan of Jean Cocteau's art in general. His paintings, his movies, he made a fantastic Beauty and the Beast that you should check out. His his books, I, he was he really was a polymath, and he was just a really interesting person. He was part of the modernists of the early uh, Paris in Paris in the early twentieth um, century. This drama was written in nineteen thirty, and um, features the new sort of um, I, I don't know that how new it was, but the the now commonly in use telephone, which was sort of a new thing at the time. In it, a single character. A woman referred to only as L in the uh, text, which means her or she, it's not her name, has been abandoned by her lover and reveals that she has attempted to commit suicide. The man is going to get married to another woman tomorrow, although I didn't pick that up. That that might be in the original text, but uh, I think that might be cut from the, uh, the operatic mm-hmm. text. I didn't really pick that up. It just sounds like she's he's... Yeah, there's no mention of that. I should check out the original text and see, because I like Cocteau a lot. Yeah, it does say that it was cut down, and it says uh, some of the phrases were left in that deal with, like, past happiness and the relationship, but he omitted a lot of the psychological or social phrases from the original text. Yeah, understandably. But it kind of makes it a little hard to understand. Yeah. In fact, I spent most of the week trying to figure out what was going on in each scene. <laughs> the, or in each section, I should say, because it's all one long 40-minute scene. The entire text consists of the woman's last conversation with her lover. We're not really clear. It's her lover. Her I don't think it's her husband, because they don't mention that. But they've had a five-year relationship, we learn. 
It's a phone conversation, and we only hear her. The man isn't heard. She responds to him. Now, you got to think about this. If you're an actress doing this, you have to kind of put across the emotion. The person on the other side of the uh, phone is giving you so that you sort of understand, you can get an idea of what he might be saying. Her responses make that clear. And Poulenc has added the musical element here in this 1958 opera adaptation of that. The piece is structured by the phone cutting off frequently without warning, and there are some musical signals as well that tell us we're in a different section. Uh, the fact that we hear only her side, that means she has to find a way to communicate what she's saying to her through her vocal reactions. The orchestra helps a bit with this in the opera, but the uh, soprano has to do just about everything here. This is a real tour de force for a vocalist, and uh, it's becoming popular again. Probably because we're being alienated all over again by uh, technology um, now with the smartphone, <laughs> right? So we're just back in that same situation. The play and, of course, the opera explore the illusion of uh, connection and over-reliance on technology in 1930 and via Poulenc in 1958 through themes of isolation, loneliness, heartbreak, and despair. And it's finding new audiences now. This has really just become popular again in the last 20 years, really, but this particular opera is starting to be taken up in the last few years. Now that our technologies are alienating us from the world around us even more than the technology alienated <laughs> us only like when we were young, when computers came into being, yeah. and then telephones, television, all that stuff. It's a work that will keep coming back into fashion, sadly. Well, good for the work, but not for us, really. And, and well, for us, if we like to see things like this, and it's clearly coming back into fashion now. We can imagine a modern smartphone losing its internet connection so I can't send a chat message or it's SMS, I don't know, running out of money on your SMS so you can't send the next message. So the same kind of anxiety would occur as we hear when the woman's phone line is disconnected or interrupted. Cocteau's play and later Poulenc's opera had the protagonist talking on a landline, of course, because that's all there were. Mm -hmm. uh, but modern performances, of course, have her on a smartphone. Now, you and I grew up in the the last years of the landline, really. I mean, they still exist, but mm. young people, it's really odd. They just can't imagine having to stay in one place and talk on the phone. It's really <laughs> yeah. funny to me. Because to me, it just seems so, you know, I mean, we've, we did it, so it's so normal. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a way, this is an opera about today. Although today we would break up via text, not really by phone, which is even more depressing than this opera is. <laughs> We wouldn't have a work like this, though. So smartphones are anti-art. That's what I say. Because we can't, <laughs> if you're texting everything, this opera wouldn't exist. There you go. Okay, so the original Cocteau piece, the 1930 stage monodrama, I won't call it a play since there's only one person in it, has been staged many times and has made a real comeback in the last 20 years. And so has Poulenc's mini opera. The Spanish film director, Pedro Almodovar, seems especially obsessed with uh, the play or the situation. His film, uh, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, which I think came out in the 1980s, was inspired by the monodrama. His film, The Law of Desire, features the end of the monologue in this um, play. And he based a short on the play in 2020 with Tilda Swinton in the main role. So he hmm. just keeps going back to this. Yeah. And you may also have heard uh, of the short film made uh, by Sofia Loren's son, Eduardo Ponti, with Sofia Loren in the title role called Voce Umana. That was a little, it was like Sofia Loren's film comeback. So she's in her son's short film. Anyway, here we have Veronique Jean in the role of El 
In Poulenc's opera written to Cocteau's text, there are cuts, as Russ said, to Cocteau's original material, making the monologue a bit hard to follow at times, and the theater piece goes into longer details that would have interrupted the flow of the operatic piece. Another issue, there, there doesn't seem to be an English translation of this text in existence. I looked for one. <laughs> the the um, CD booklet only has the French text. Now, you can try to hover your uh, Google Translate camera over it to see the words, but they don't, somehow don't make sense. It's a very idiomatic yeah. dialogue, but you can, you can get a sense of it. And even if you don't know French, I mean, you, you can still kind of figure out a lot of what's going on. But there are little details that are helpful to know. Oh, this doing this gave made me understand why we don't do opera on this podcast. It took a lot of work to figure <laughs> out what was happening. And I really summed up Jean's uh, performance in this because it was so like these quicksilver changes. She's reacting to these things that are happening to her on the phone and she gets a lot of emotions and to have explained all of them would have taken the rest of the podcast. Anyway, let's go through the 21 tracks um, very quickly. It starts with an introduction, swirling figures, there's an instrumental at the beginning, and then there are ominous chords and timpani beats. This sets the tone. The swirling figures would be sort of the anxiety. The ominous chords are some kind of dramatic happening. And there are some you know, calm Puccinian moments in the opera too. The second uh, track starts with a xylophone, I think that is, for the telephone ringing. Is that what that is? I guess. Kind of sounds like it to so. me. Yeah. Yeah. So every time you hear the xylophone, it's it's kind of cute, really. Yeah. Jean characterizes this character as anxious at the beginning and even on edge, which I guess is the right way to do it. Although I have to say, there are numerous ways you can interpret this role. It, it just became obvious to me when I was listening to this. And this is just one. You would want to hear different performers in this role to just hear the different uh, nuances of character that could be brought out of this um, text and music. We're aware right away that the pleasantries of the conversation that uh, we're hearing are masking something more serious. So what we're hearing here is lines were crossed, and uh, there's a woman on the other side of the call that shouldn't be there. In the 1930s, I think you had those women working as operators, right? You know, plugging the uh, lines in, you know, and uh, th they often got crossed back in the day. That never used to happen to us, though. Although I have had it happen in. Staten Island in the 1970s, <laughs> but it was very rare at that point. We can hear into other people's conversations sometimes. Okay, third track, uh, the man reaches her here. There's a fake contentment into Jean, coming into Jean's voice as she explains that she's doing well. We're going to find out soon enough that she's not. There are downward weeping string figures as she explains that she went out to eat with her friend Martha. Track four, the music plays a quiet, creeping rhythm as the woman describes her evening. And she says she couldn't sleep. She took a pill. Only one, she says. Later on, we're going to find out she took more than that. I'll tell you how many when we get there. So we have a sense here the man is concerned about her. Something's wrong. Uh, the music builds in the drama. It builds harmonic tension. Excellent pacing by the orchestra in support of Jean's performance. And this is true through the entire performance. There's a dramatic dissonant chord. These often interrupt to change the mood and section of the work. Mm. And the woman agitated says, very strong. I have a lot of courage. So something ominous is coming up. There's no accompaniment when, when, when she says these words. So that indicates she's getting no support sort of from her thoughts or anything. We slowly start to understand what the situation is. Uh, she ends by asking, what trial? And then resignedly, ah, yes. I'm guessing this court case 
involves her. I, it's never made clear, so mm -hmm. I don't really know. And this is the only mention of a trial in the entire uh, text. Are they married? Are they getting divorced? This would have been an unusual thing to do in the 1930s. Although, I guess it happened then. Track five, um, Desperation. As the woman can't hear the man, the line is compromised. A sad descending theme accompanies the woman dejectedly saying that her letters and his are in a bag and he can get them when he wants. So now it's clear from this point that they're separating and she's unhappy about it. She tells him not to be sorry and that she was the one who was stupid and he apparently comforts her. And in fact, she seems, we find out from later details, to have done something that sort of set him off or was the last straw or something like that, but we never really find out what it is. It's something she said. But now she's really repentant. Track six, uh, there's a bit of anger here as the woman responds to the man accusing her of faking her emotions. And you want to hear all these changes in Veronique Jean's tone and approach when these things happen. It's pretty amazing. She says she's incapable of doing that. What that is, doesn't we don't say yet, but we're going to find out. There are stabs from the orchestra, probably indicating her inner feelings. She's telling him she doesn't sound like someone who's hiding something, but kind of like in Wagner, the music indicates she's hiding her suffering. Uh, she rather pathetically blames herself for the failure of their relationship. She keeps doing this, apologizing, and the reason why is because she wants the man back. Uh, she's a bit afraid. Uh, track seven, um, the music smooths out for a moment as the woman recalls a time in Versailles when she was selfish with him. Uh, the music and Jean's voice become agitated as she accuses herself. But again, the man tries to take the blame for the apparently what was a fight that they had. The conversation calms and strings take on a wavy nature as the woman tries to remember a date. On track eight, there's real tension and desperation as the woman explains that the bag with their letters will be downstairs with the concierge when he comes to pick them up tomorrow. Uh, she didn't realize things would be happening so fast. She's afraid of losing the man and doesn't know whether she'll stay home or go to the countryside with Martha. These lines are lyrical and romantic, and we get to hear that gorgeous tone we've been enjoying on so many of Jean's albums of French chanson. Track 9, more phone problems. A lot of moods are heard in this section, melting lyricism, anxiousness, and a flirtatiousness when the woman claims she can see him with her ears. Track 10, there's some real sadness as the woman admits that she's not in the habit of sleeping alone. So we're going to get deeper and deeper from this point into her isolation and her loneliness and her fear. This gives way to self-hatred as she says she doesn't dare look at herself in the mirror because she sees an old woman there. She responds angrily to the man saying she's cruel. Then the connection gets crossed again. Track 11 is more desperation as she tells the woman whose line she's crossed to hang up. When the phone rings again, the operator tells the woman that the man's line is busy. We learn here that the man is calling her from a restaurant and that the line keeps getting cut off. And this only agitates her more. Why isn't he home? Track 12, a dramatic orchestral opening. The phone rings. She's back in touch with the man. She thanks him for calling back and insists that they talk about their disagreement, then admits that she lied to him about the way she was dressed after some back and forth. There's a high note at 2 minutes and 53 seconds on track 12 on the word fall, which means crazy. So she's saying she's crazy, and on that word, it really sounds crazy. <laughs> she gets really high up in her range. She's bored and is becoming crazy, she says. After this, she tries to calm down, but starts building up anxiety again. The man talks her down because she starts talking about what she did last night, and she admits she's been feeling unwell. And in track 13, we find out what really happened 
last night. She says she wanted to take a pill, but thought if she took more, she'd sleep better. She's probably lying here. And if she took all of them, she'd be dead. So she took 12 pills, which is too many, obviously. Yeah. Not one. The truth she's been avoiding telling the man is coming out here. She dreamed she was alone, and when she woke up and realized it was true, she thought she couldn't live. This is heavy operatic stuff here. The orchestra underlines her dream with a pulsing 3-4 rhythm and build up to Puccini-like drama as she admits she feels like she can't go on living. She called her friend Marta because she is afraid of dying alone. The track ends with her reaching out for comfort to the man, saying, Cherie, Cherie, she's calling him, my dear. Track 14 tells the story of when Marta arrives. She came at four in the morning. There's a dramatic pause just after the woman saying she told Marta to leave because she was afraid the man would call and the woman was afraid Marta wouldn't let her talk to him as she desperately wanted to talk to him. The calm part has the woman telling the man not to worry. Uh, she interrupts a long pause with a loud hello because she thinks they've been cut off. She says it's enough to hear his voice to make her feel better and she starts telling him of a time when they were in bed together and she had her head resting on his chest and she's interrupted thinking the line is cut again. On track 15, the music picks up a lightly savage beat. The woman says she hears music. She's hysterical here, telling him desperately to tell his neighbors not to play their gramophone at such an early hour. Now remember, he's at a restaurant, so he's probably out and maybe with someone, but we're not told that. She's avoiding another truth here that will be revealed shortly, and she confesses that if he hadn't called, she'd be dead. <laughs> this would be enough for me to, to chase me away from her, yeah. by the way, <laughs> this kind of emotional blackmail, but that's beside the point. Anyway, a dramatic violin line is heard uh, in track 16. It settles into some calming harmony as she tells the man she is suffering, and he's good to be patient with her. The phone line is the last thing that connects them. That's an important line. End of track 16. The woman answers a question in track 17 about what she did before the events of last night. The section plays out like a confession. Uh, she slept with the phone. It's how she's tied to him. Technology connects them. We learned the couple had lived together for five years. He gave her purpose. She was so attached to him that when he was gone, she feared he wouldn't come back. And when he was there, she feared he'd leave. So she's always got this fear with her. The music and vocal line rush to the point where she admits she's lived through him for so long that she doesn't know how to live by herself. And that's a really kind of gives, mm. gives us a feeling of emptiness to hear that too. There's apparently a dog in her apartment. Uh, she mentions it's a dog, in fact, at 3 minutes and 48 seconds. And the dog wouldn't let her touch him over recent days. The dog won't eat or move, and it looks at her in a menacing way, perhaps thinking she'd done something to the man. While talking about the dog, there's a glowing string accompaniment and the woman's voice calms. Jean goes through a lot of quick mood changes in this section, and really through the whole opera, always coming back to anxiety. All register well to the listener. Track 18. Um, this is a key point in the piece. The phone line is interrupted again. The woman loses her temper with the woman on the other line, then apologizes. Once she hangs up, she gets a bit philosophical about saying, breaks up, breakups are breakups. And people either love each other or hate each other. You can't make others understand certain things. This is sung lyrically with one light outburst when the man objects. So she's back on the line with the man again at this point. At a minute and 47 seconds, there's a loud dissonant chord from the orchestra when it occurs to the woman that this isn't an ordinary conversation. It will be their last. And in the buildup of musical tension that follows, we end at the line that sums up one of the piece's main themes. A look can change everything 
but with a phone, what's finished is finished. Think about email here, okay? If you want to make up with someone, you got to be face-to-face, look them in the eyes. Something is kind of communicated that way. Mm. But if you're saying things on, a, on an email, there's just no feeling to it. You could easily just kind of you know, say what you want and be completely bloodless when you do it. Jean drops to a note just at the bottom of her range to put across this line, and it's deeply touching. Listen to the very end of track 18 for that. Track 19? Now, a lot of critics claim that the woman kills herself at the end of the opera or shortly after when she drops the phone and sinks onto the bed, but I don't think so because of the line she starts this track off with. She says to the man, don't worry, one doesn't commit suicide twice. So she tried to OD on pills last night. She's not going to do it again. That's, she says that anyway. I guess you could read into it as just something, you know, trying to calm the man down. But I, I take that a bit seriously. I think she doesn't kill herself. Uh, Jean's voice here is emotionless, uh, sort of frozen with no feeling. Um, the man gets angry when she explains how the man could lie to her to make their separation less painful. And she anxiously changes tack when the man gets angry, assuring him that she believes him, that she doesn't think he's lying. Track 20, the phone line is actually cut off here, and we hear the woman singing a high note with desperate emotion, hello, hello, on those words. She pleads in rapid lines that he redial. She keeps repeating the same phrase like it's some kind of mantra that he'll redial and reach her. And he does. She resumes her story, telling him that if he lied to her and she found out, she'd have nothing but affection for him. <laughs> This apparently disgusts the man because there's an outburst from the orchestra and the woman, in trying to reassure him, wraps the phone line around her neck and tells him that his voice is around her neck. So it's like simultaneously close to her and killing her too, I guess, like a noose. A maudlin sentiment comes out in the next bit of dialogue when, learning the man will be in Marseille tomorrow, the woman pleads with him not to go to the hotel that they both stayed in there and he agrees to that. Or at least he says he agrees. And track 21, the last track, there's a big dramatic musical climax. Then the music peters out as the woman repeats, I love you at the end, heartbreakingly knowing that when she hangs up or the man hangs up on her, she'll never hear his voice again. In fact, she tells him before she says, I love you, je t'aime, je t'aime, to hang up quickly because she can't. She drops the receiver and that's how the piece ends. So I guess the dropping of the receiver means the end Mm. of the connection. So a really powerful piece. And we're not finished. Next, we get a rather light piece to kind of as a bit of dessert after this heaviness. Poulenc's Sinfonietta, FP 141. Um, This is a four-movement work. It starts out Allegro con fuoco, first movement, actively, with a short gesture followed by an unwinding phrase. And so it's sort of a Mozartian way of phrasing, but with the harmony of Poulenc's day. This has a neoclassical sound to it, The orchestra allows the music to flow smoothly during continuing passages and manages abrupt stops when necessary. Sound quality is clear, allowing certain instruments to occasionally stand out, particularly the brass. And this really is a spirited performance, full of charm and occasional niceties of orchestration. At the 2 minute 13 second and 2 minute 52 second mark, there's a staccato bassoon providing the bass line. Very nice sound. At around 3 minutes and 50 seconds, there's a new calm section with the feel of a calm moonlit night to its silvery passages, played by winds and brass. We get back to a more active section after the seven-minute mark, with a flowing passage in the strings, occasionally handed to winds, that's highly appealing. In the eighth minute, there's more hushed material, as we heard in the middle section. And the movement ends with a tonic. 
The second movement has a rushing energetic theme. It's labeled Molto Vivace. It's engaging and appealing, as is this whole piece, and as is Poulenc's way in this era of his uh, composition. The theme has a light, popular feel to it, and I like the way the accompanying swirling clarinet is fully audible at the one-minute mark and after. Details are well-balanced in the orchestra and well-caught on this recording. The material finally calms down with a contrasting but still energetic theme at the three-minute mark, the contrast being in the theme's conjunct quality. There's a build-up of tension toward the end, which ends in a pause at 4 minutes and 43 seconds. Then at 5 minutes and 7 seconds, the cheerful opening suddenly reemerges and leads to the end of the movement. The third movement is the Andante Cantabile, the slow movement. This also has one of those Poulenc special themes. It's uh, slower and has a Gallic evening in Paris quality to it that has a serene calmness to it. Light, full of charm. There's warm orchestration on the strings and a kind of light, jazzy sway to the phrasing. Listen at a minute and 50 seconds to the cleverly arranged transition via shifting chord colors to a new section at 2 minutes and 30 seconds, equally charming. After the 4-minute mark, there's a buildup of tension that resolves to a romantic theme. At 5 minutes and 20 seconds, we get the serene opening material again, and the movement ends serenely. Serene really is Poulenc's main operating mood, especially in the uh, 1930s, 1940s. Fourth movement, high spirits begin on this movement on a fortissimo chord and a brief intro that leads to the theme at 14 seconds. The opening material emerges with a celebratory quality and also a kind of Mozart-like giddiness and mischievousness to it, heard in the sudden changes of musical material. The orchestral playing is supremely musical, if showing the slightest bit of restraint in quicker passages. It's a performance that flows with little regard for caution. I always hear hints of uh, Gershwin in Poulenc's flowing mid-tempo rhythms, as in the fourth minute here, and in the background glissando at about 5 minute and 15 second mark. At about the 5 minute and 25 second mark, the opening giddy material returns, but shifts to something quieter, with a champagne-fueled happiness to it. Champagne is really the, <laughs> the bubbling quality of this whole work and this movement. It's a good image to sum this work up. The movement ends on a forte, but all tension is not released by the final chord. The uh, piece is light and charming and a real relief after La Voix Humaine, the opera we just heard. So the opera, or the mono, whatever you want to call it, it really is a mini opera. La Voix Humaine is powerfully realized, and it's followed here by the lighter, more calming, and very charming Sinfonietta, which has the lightness of Poulenc in his earlier period but the length of a full-on symphony. It's a well-arranged program of drama and entertainment. Performances are excellent, and the recording comes across exceptionally well. Veronique Jean has been a superb soprano on record for many years, but this may be her most overtly dramatic performance on record. She displays many moods, and powerfully so. The character she plays comes across in many ways, and not always sympathetic ones, though we sympathize with her deeply by the end. It's quite a tour de force, said to be the Mount Everest of works for a soprano, and Jean remains on point throughout, with the tone of the voice itself always engaging. I've always thought of her as a, an art song singer, but here, this is uh, very dramatic stuff. It's a must-hear for opera fans in general, for fans of Poulenc, and for fans of Veronique Jean, and really for fans of this uh, particular theater piece. I'm not sure I'll choose the albums as one of my albums of the year, just because I'm drawn to other things, but I might pick this out of a sense of objective duty, but it is that good. Uh, it's sure to be at the top of many classical lists by the end of the year. 
Now, if you don't speak French, this is going to be a little bit of a problem because you're going to have like a French text in front of you. You can use a translation camera for that or something to follow. But you really want to hear this amazing dramatic performance by one person over a 40-minute period. Really amazing. Yeah, starting with the Sinfonietta, I really like the way he really uses all the sections of the orchestra, uh, getting a real blend of timbres and uh, sweeping lines. And then we've got like the second movement is really lots of playful motion, a happy mood, a nice woodwinds in the third. And the fourth movement, it has this kind of combination of fun motion and blends of sound and gets that dreamy kind of atmosphere you mentioned too. And so overall, it's light, but kind of enjoyable. I don't know what to say about the opera. You've <laughs> covered yeah. the, the contents. Just I did what uh, I could. <laughs> experiencing it, it, even though it's in French, which I couldn't understand everything there, and I had a bit of an idiomatic translation of some of the main points, you do get this kind of uh, voyeuristic quality. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that you I shouldn't be listening right. to this because it's too personal. But right. um, yeah. w what I noticed, and just picking up more on the musical content, the musical sections are short, and they're responding and backing these rapid changes of events and emotion and hysteria. So it's kind of interesting writing. But even during that, they keep a real French sensitivity to timbre. And they're interesting to listen to because the balance and the tones of instruments are really interesting. And that's a good point. I didn't think of that. Yeah. And inside of all these really short passages and rapid changes, I picked out uh, numbers 13 and 16 are the ones that get a little more development. Uh, 13 gets really quite broad and more melodic. Uh, mm -hmm. sort of a peaceful strain of emotion coming through there. And 16 is also kind of sweeping. And at the end of that is kind of a turning point in the conversation. So there are these a little bit longer interludes of music that get a little more development. Otherwise, it's kind of interesting that he's you know, composing to just support these events. And it's not like, um, you know, it's a mini opera, I guess you can say, but things change really quickly all the time. So it must have <laughs> been uh, a challenge to you know, address that kind of uh, rapid change from the one-sided vantage point right. we get of this conversation. I bet this will win the uh, the gramophone. Uh, I don't know what they'll qualify it as, opera or vocal performance. I don't know what they'll I do, but know. I bet it'll win the award. Could be, yeah. It'll definitely be nominated, that's for sure. All right, going on to the jazz section then, we're going to have some familiar names uh, return here tonight and also a new surprise at the end. But let's get started with the old friends theme here. And the first recording is by Alex Sipiagin, the great trumpeter, and his new recording, Mel's Vision. This is on the Crisscross label, came out at the end of January. Sipiagin, we've featured a lot. I'll go over all the recordings we've yeah. talked about of his on the podcast. But if you don't know him, he's uh, 55 now, and he emigrated to the United States from Russia in 1991. And this is his 13th recording on Crisscross. And I had to talk about this because it's got some other great players on here, too. Chris Potter on saxophone, one of the leading uh, saxophone players out there today who's just got his own new album live at the village vanguard out mm. that's going to be a must here too but it's yeah, got, i like him a lot yeah. yeah he's really good and one of our favorite pianists david kikoski right here too and we've got matt brewer on bass and jonathan blake big name on the drums now yeah. other recordings we've talked about all the way back to episode 14 are 
September tease uh, oh. <laughs> episode. We did his uh, previous release on Positon uh, that was called Upstream, and that was with Art Hirahara, Boris Kozlov, and Rudy Royston, that great Positon <laughs> rhythm section, which we're going to talk about in the next re- <laughs> recording <laughs> tonight. Uh, also, episode 48, where we did uh, that was uh, Crafty Complications. He played with uh, Russian pianist Misha Tsiganov, uh, Misha's Wishes. That was also on Crisscross. And last year, let's see, episode 52, Sexually Promiscuous. <laughs> that was uh, with <laughs> the second recording we're going to hear tonight, Diego Rivera, his Mestizo, also on Positone. And that included the same rhythm section. So we're going to hear th- that combination of players minus Sipiagin in the second recording. Episode 66 with the group that I first heard him play with back in the early 2000s, uh, Swing on This, uh, Opus 5, that includes uh, Dave Kikoski as well. That's a great recording. That had uh, Seamus Blake on tenor sax uh, there too, and we really enjoyed that. We also heard him with Michael Deese, the trombonist, on his Positone release, Best Next Thing. That was episode 75. And then we heard him with Conrad Herwig's Latin side of Mingus on Savant, episode 85, Joy and Meditations. And he was on trumpet together with Randy Brecker there. So we've got a lot of his playing and all of that. But we missed his last recording on Positone, Ascent to the Blues. And that had Diego Rivera guesting as well as this other Positone rhythm section. So I didn't want to miss this one. And we'll catch up on all the other players <laughs> on the next recording. And this one... He's going to feature some compositions by other players. Usually his recordings have a lot of his original compositions, which can be kind of a challenge. But tonight's going to be a mix on this recording. So we're going to start out with one of his original compositions and the title of the recording, Mel's Vision. Now this one starts with an eight-bar intro, syncopated sets of cycling chords from Kikoski over a synced-up bass cymbal and drum fills from Blake in a 6-8 feel, but the meter gets hard to distinguish after that because the melody has kind of snaking, harmonized lines in Potter and Sipiagin's horns. There's a seven-measure phrase that repeats, and then a rhythmic feel change-up for a longer middle section with different feels and more flowing horn lines. Then we hear that first phrase again. Sipiagin is up first for a solo. He starts with shorter lyrical phrases, leaving pauses in between, getting a floating feeling over the swelling feel in the rhythm section, working into longer flowing lines that gradually reach higher and higher, and then into lots of speedy double-time phrases, uh, ending up with shorter phrases. It's a nice arc of development, which is one of the reasons I really like his solos. They're all like mini-compositions. Potter's solo then has lots of snappy rhythmic phrasing and licks in between speedier run ideas. Kikoski locks in nicely with him when he gets this little Latin riff going on the way. And then Kikoski comes out chiming and works into some descending phrase ideas that he builds around with higher little figures, more harmonies, getting into running rhythmic phrases and chiming chords. After Kikoski brings it down, he and Brewer vamp on the opening pattern for Blake to mix it up around the drum kit, and they go through the first and middle melody sections again, taking it to a soft ending. Track two, we're going to get a tune, Summer's End, by jazz pianist Don Friedman, who passed away back in 2016. Starts with a solo rubato piano opening from Kikoski. It's very gentle and pretty. Just before a minute, a soft cymbal from Blake brings everyone in tempo on the soft ballad melody. Sipiagin and Potter work it together, splitting off into different lines on the way. 
Brewer has sure bass pulses underneath the flow of Blake's cymbal textures. Sipiagin solos first, starting with nicely connected melodic phrases. I love the line right at about five minutes of descending intervals, moving into upward pushing notes. It's so simple, but so tasty. It's a ballad, but he gets some final lines of speedy double-time flurries before Potter takes over. And he starts out with easy flowing phrases into some more rhythmic licks and then gets into some ideas from the melody down in the lower register. It's a really nice thick sax tone. They bring back the horn melody for a while and then pass it off to Kikoski to finish it up with some more piano with gentle final touches. We're going to get a McCoy Tyner tune called 4x5. Uh, this has, a t- has meters and phrases to make your head spin. Uh, the <laughs> first part of the melody is a four-bar repeated section in 4-4, four, four, but the note phrases are in three, so it kind of throws you off. And then there are four bars of 5-4 time and a final four bars of the first 4-4 four, four section. Uh, so it's <laughs> hard to keep your place through it. Uh, Spiagin has the main melody line, but Potter has a new moving line uh, that ends up with Tyner's left-hand notes from the original recording, if you've ever heard it. Uh, The horns take its solo for a round, and then they do it again with the rhythm section joining in. They launch into an agile bass solo from Brewer, or spacey punctuated chords from Kikoski and dancing cymbals from Blake. Uh, Sipiagin follows working through the changes with some fun harmonic twisty lines. The chords on this one originally are like alternating seventh chords for two bars each. I think it was like E7, F sharp 7 for eight bars. And then it's like a series of seven chords that start on a G7 and they move up a step each measure for eight bars. So it has this kind of rising harmonic motion to it. Uh, Thankfully, the solo section stays in Um, (laughs) 4-4. Potter really rips through it on his solo, snappy phrasing, cool rising riff into high register ideas. Spiagin and Potter take turns, running through the whole structure and then trading eight-bar phrases, then four bars. Uh, Things get heated and harmonically challenging. Kikoski is next, and this is the kind of tune you want to hear him let loose on. Dancing high register lines and dense percussive chords with lines that build on each other. Blake gets the last word with a really busy and intense drum solo. He gets it tight to bring everyone in on the melody, and they give it a mirror shape to the beginning, uh, going around it twice with just the horns on the last time. Track four is a tune by Chris Potter called Maratima. Blake starts this one out on the drums for eight bars with some nice snare work and a definite bass drum pulse. They go around once more with Brewer adding a repeated bass figure and once again with some chords from Kikoski. The horns come in on the smooth melody lines and the bass idea from the intro is continued as a counterline in the bass and piano left hand. The whole melody section is 48 bars and there's this cool little calypso-like phrase from the 13th to the 16th bar that made me think of something like maritime, like sailing in the hmm. Bahamas or something. Hmm. Uh, as a kind of light-flowing Latin beat, Potter solos first. He blows lots of well-connected melodic ideas, surprising with the ends of phrases with high or low notes. The horns blow the last four measures from the melody section together as a transition to Sipiagin's solo. Among the smooth lines, he does a lot of nice high register work here, some trills and speedy double-time lines, and I like the last squeezed phrase. I hear a lot of Freddie Hubbard kind of influence here and it sounds like he's on flugelhorn but i have to say (laughs) i have a lot of trouble telling his flugelhorn sound from his trumpet sound on all (laughs) recordings for a couple reasons one when he gets on flugelhorn he actually 
plays in the high register a lot, yeah. which a lot of players don't. They keep it in down low and fluffy. Also, his trumpet tone is really thick and warm and dark in general, and he plays usually on a, a horn with no lacquer, so it's got a kind of dark sound anyway. So I can't mm. really tell his, uh, you know, his personality and way of playing doesn't change much in my opinion. Anyway, after that, Kikowski builds a tasty solo from relaxed ideas at the start. I like the gentle flowing waves of lines and then more percussive chords. They go through the melody section again, and the horns start to split off from the last four-bar section into trading solo exchanges and blowing together then over a vamp like the intro section, ending with the last four bars of the melody. Now we're going to get an interesting arrangement of a Ukrainian folk song. Vizhnyanka, I think is how you pronounce it. A rhythm section intro for eight measures with some dense chords from Kikoski. It's got a 6-8 feel. The horns come in for another round of the pattern with measure-long notes, and there's a measure fill before the melody. It's a minor modal kind of folk melody with a longing quality to it. The horns played in unison and very legato. We hear the eight-measure theme in unison, a four-bar interlude with just the rhythm section. The theme again with the sax in a split part and a shorter two-bar interlude and then a modulation of the theme again in unison. Then another four-bar interlude and a return to the original line with the different sax part again. After another short interlude, Potter is up for a solo. He's fluid and makes his lines really swing over the 6-8 time. On the second modulation section, he works way up high and then down low. Sipiagin starts his solo relaxed and fluffy, working a bit outside of the harmony and weaving lines back in. He gets into the upper register with some staccato notes for variety and some real squeals making harmonic tension, uh, but he brings everything back down to earth smoothly again. Then Kikoski plays an energetic solo as well here, keeping his right hand ideas up in the high register over pressing chords with lots of percussive and ringing rhythmic figures. They bring the melody sections with the same interlude spaces that we heard at the beginning and then stretch it out for more improvisations from Spiagin and Potter until it gets soft over just the rhythm section to end in tempo. And next, an Ornette Coleman tune, Bird Food. Hmm. Uh, this is the second take. This comes from his 1960 album, Change of the Century. You know Ornette Coleman, he was a pioneer of free jazz, and it really took the world a long time to figure out and accept <laughs> what he was playing <laughs> in his solos. Uh, however, his compositions were kind of accepted more easily than his improvisations because they tended to sound more like jazz standards. And this tune you could think of as Coleman's idea of rhythm changes, in other words, George Gershwin's I've Got Rhythm. Uh, it's a 32-measure AABA construction that a lot of jazz tunes are based on, but don't get too comfortable. Uh, there's a four-bar <laughs> drum intro with a two-measure pickup line by the horns into the melody. Now, the quirky part here is that the A section of the melody, which is normally eight measures, is nine and a half measures. So you got an extra measure and then two beats, and then it repeats immediately. It's a real jarring effect <laughs> to the listener defying your expectations. But the second time around the A section, and then the last time when it comes after the B, it actually comes out to 11 measures. Uh, so things <laughs> are a little bit unusual there. It goes back to regular meters and metrics for the solos, and Spiagin is up first. His extended melody lines and connection of ideas are really great here. Potter follows. He starts with some gutsy rhythmic phrases, working into smoother and speedy lines 
always with good melodic direction. And Kakowski really swings on this one, mixing in bluesy licks, some cool altered harmonic ideas, and suspense causing space right before four minutes, and then a really rising, hesitated line into the B section right about four minutes and ten seconds. And he's always so fun to listen to for me. Uh, Brewer gets a bass solo. Next, it has some cool slides in it, repeated note ideas and bluesy licks, and they take it around the quirky theme once more to close it out. Track 7 is a, another Sipiagin original composition, Balmoral Point. This one starts out with an easy-flowing bass solo from Brewer. Uh, Blake has a light, straight drumming with a click on 3 to hold your place, but things get more challenging when the horn melody comes in, with phrases that Potter and Sipiagin start together, and then have offset starts of phrases afterwards. I think the repeating phrase pattern is measures of 4, 3, 4, three three four four <laughs> at least it works if i count it that way um, the next melody section is more straightforward with measures of three and four beats or seven four for three measures and then a final measure of four there's a little interlude with just the rhythm section and then a final new section of three plus four horn lines spiagin is up first for a fluid solo with some speedy double time sections that ventures into the high range. Uh, it stays in four, but they have some fun with the accents at the end. Potter is fluid too, but digs down low before some high excursions and intense snappy rhythmic phrases. They take it through the two melody sections again, and then Kikoski gets a solo over the three plus four pattern. Uh, he comes up with some nicely phrased ideas with quick turns in his lines. The horn lines for that rhythmic pattern come in uh, for one more round with some final horn flurries to end it. Track 8 is Charles Mingus' tune, Peggy's Blue Spotlight, and this is the shortest tune on the recording at just under four minutes, and they just take a robato romp through this great Mingus hmm. melody. Potter answers Sipiagin's melody lines, Kikoski floats waves of piano, and Blake pastes cymbal textures over bass pulses from Brewer. The horns swell and add improvised garnishes, and I like how they bring it down at the end. Potter adding soft rhythmic phrases over Kikoski's unwinding music box piano tinkles. Hmm. And we're going to end up with the first take of Coleman's Bird Food. It's just added here as an alternate take. There's very different solos here, and it's a little bit longer. Uh, Sipiagin's solo's rather different and really playful, and Potter sounds more boppy and has more major-sounding licks and some speedy and high-register fun. Kikoski's solo's really rhythmic and bouncy with some cool hesitation and punchy percussive chords. So we get two originals, one arrangement of a Ukrainian folk song, a tune by Potter, and then some interpretations of compositions by jazz greats. There's a lot to enjoy and dig into here. Spiagin's playing is powerful and full of energetic ideas. He builds well-constructed solos with always great phrasing, as does Potter, and I was impressed with the rhythmic drive in his solos on this recording. And Kikoski's one of my favorite pianists. You hear a bit of his gentle side as well on this recording with the summer's end tune, as well as high-energy playing, always cool cool chord voicings, and interesting solos. Blake's drumming is really tight with great drive, and Brewer's bass has a great deep bounce, powering everything along. I'm always in the mood to hear more from Sipiagin and the rest of these uh, players as well. Yeah, by the way, I'm wondering, do we have any idea who Mel is? I don't know. Yeah, oh well. Yeah. I, wonder if it's, I wonder if he owns a diner, because I always think of <laughs> like Mel's Diner from Happy Days. And, is it Mel Lewis? Uh, I don't or, know. or from yeah. American Graffiti, whatever that movie, wherever that came from. Mel Lewis? Maybe? Yeah. Okay. Just Maybe he'll write to us and tell us. Anyway, for me, you see David Kukoski's name on an, an album, and you just know they're just going to be great solos. 
And uh, not just by him on this album. Mm. We have a lot of really great soloists here, and yeah. they all deliver the goods, too. Chris Potter is fantastic. I, I really like him a lot, actually. I've got, yeah, I've got yeah. a lot of albums of him as a leader as well from the past, as is Sipiagin himself. This is a really long album, by the way. <laughs> all, all these tracks clock in at six minutes or more. And that's good, though, because it leaves a lot of room for soloing. And these guys are all such good soloists that you really want to hear this. I found myself engaged all the way through this album. And man, whoever's in the spotlight, they just have loads of ideas. This, this reminds me of something somebody once told me. He um, said, you know, I want to be a writer, an author. And uh, this somebody said to me, well, what happens when you run out of ideas? <laughs> and it was just an incomprehensible comment because this guy obviously thought of creativity as like a bucket and you fill the bucket with ideas <laughs> once the bucket's empty, you have no more that's ideas. <laughs> but that's yeah. not how it works. It's kind of more like a magnifying glass, and the ideas come from the sun, and you just kind of magnify them in your right. heart and just keep coming. And I, I always get that impression when I'm hearing um, Kikoski, especially soloing. Everybody on this album is just showing us how it's done, basically. They just yeah. keep, you feel like they could just keep going forever. You just get the idea that they put out 100 albums a year, which they seem to do, actually, in different combinations. Right, right. Um, they'd still be coming up with compelling solo ideas. And I expect that when we listen to, uh, you, you had mentioned another recording that some of them are on. I just expect we're just going to hear a lot of other oh, great Oh, the Opus solo. 5, yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah, so yeah, solid album and really something if you're into soloing. You want to know something about how soloing is done, you should really listen to this album. Yeah. Lots of great musical ideas. All right, and our next recording by another repeat performer on the podcast here, Diego Rivera, in his new recording on Positone, Love and Peace. Well, we heard his uh, previous recording, Mestizo, also on Positone, as I mentioned before. That was back in episode 52 with this same great rhythm section and Alex Sipiagin and Trumpet on that one, but he's not on this one here. And Rivera is Associate Professor of Jazz Saxophone at Michigan State University, and he was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He was raised in East Lansing and he, to a Mexican-American family, and that heritage has always been important and helped shape his uh, creative output. And he was actually named after the famed muralist Diego Rivera, but he chose to uh, have his expression through music rather than paintings, <laughs> and we're lucky because of that. Yeah, because he's pretty great. Here he is... Uh, on this recording, tenor and also soprano saxophone on some tracks, which I'll point out, the great Art Hirahara, another one of our most favorite pianists. Yeah. And that's going to be a real treat on this uh, recording, as well as the rest of that positone rhythm section, Boris Kozlov on bass and the great Rudy Royston on drums. Produced by Mark Free, who always puts out great stuff on positone, engineered by Nick O'Toole. And we're going to start out with uh, Diego Rivera composition, Lovely. So from the title, Love and Peace, the first track is about love, and then peace will be at the end. Uh, so anyway, lovely. Right from the start here, you're going to be put in a good mood with Art Hirahara's bouncy and swinging solo eight-bar intro. Yeah, really old-timey. Yeah, old-timey old piano here. Yeah, kind of style there. Rivera comes in with the happy melody line. It's 16 bars with the second half made of repeated syncopated notes that Hirahara joins in on, pushing it ahead. They go around that twice. Then an eight-bar bridge from just the rhythm section into another round of the melody line. Rivera comes out of the break swinging way on a solo, 
if you haven't heard him before, you'll get a nice taste of his muscular tone and smooth flowing phrasing with well-connected melodic development always in his solos. Hirohara is next with a very energetic solo of snappy swinging phrases, also with nice connection. They keep the same form of two 16-bar melody runs, bridge, and one more 16-bar section for the solos. And they wrap it up with another run through the melody sections with a little repeat of the final phrase to build up tension to the end. Yeah, Hirohara sounds like especially inspired on this track. Yeah. He's just, every yeah. note he plays just sounds like really it's coming yeah. through that magnifying glass I talked about before. Yeah, really know? great. Yeah. Track two, another Rivera original, Ganas. I think it means something like desire or enthusiasms or something in Spanish. Anyway, it's a speedy Latin beat tune for this one, and Rivera switches over to soprano sax here, starts with a little unison intro line on sax and piano, and then Royston and Kozlov start laying down a great groove with a few improvised piano measures. Rivera returns for the melody line together with Hirohara that has some fun stop time and topsy-turvy phrases. Royston gets a few measures of drum fills over piano chords into a Cuban breakdown from Hirohara that launches Rivera on a solo. He keeps a rather husky tone even on soprano that never sounds nasal like it can in the hands of some players. He's bursting with ideas here through his snaky lines. Royston's really hammering out some great drumming underneath all around the kit, and Hirohara follows with a solo of fast and smooth lines mixed up with percussive chords, reaching a great climax in the high register and some final hammering. Uh, they rip through the first melody section once more to finish it up. Track 3, Gracias a la Vida. This is by Chilean composer Violeta Parra, and Joan Baez fans will know uh, this one because she did a version of this song. Back on tenor sax here, Rivera starts it out with a solo pickup line into the minor melody. Royston has sassy light Latin beat going on. It's basically a 28-bar melody with some nice harmonic twists into the relative major. Uh, after the initial melody phrase again, Rivera continues on into a solo with soft but rhythmic phrases building up with faster double-time phrases. And Hirahara shows his great touch on his solo here with varied articulations from a soft touch, speedy lines, and more percussive chord ideas. Once more through the melody to end it up. Back to Rivera original for track four, Soul Purpose, but S-O-U-L. Uh, Royston mm -hmm. gives a speedy pickup in some busy fills, hinting at things to come under a lazy and bluesy melody from Rivera that has some playful hesitations in it. After the 18th bar, it hangs on, and Royston gets a furious gospel beat going. Uh, Rivera adds a bluesy line into a speedy solo from Hirohara, caught up in the spirit. Uh, listen to Kozlov's bass bouncing along and changing up things underneath as Hirohara really rings it out. Rivera has the spirit in him too with speedy, soulful, and bluesy solo ideas. The tempo is really cranked up and Rivera and Hirohara get some exchanges until they downshift back into the original slow groove to end up on the second part of the original melody and some final drum flourishes. Track 5, Anticipation, another Rivera original. Back on soprano sax, Rivera blows a fast, snaky pickup into this fast swinging tune. The melody is a 24-bar theme that they play twice. Check out the rhythmic changeup in the last eight bars with Royston's flurries and cool syncopated chords and bass from Hirohara and Kozlov. A quick break into another fine solo from Hirohara. Listen to him really chime it out on the third time around. This album might be the most energized I've heard him play. 
just great stuff. Uh, Rivera's next on soprano, speedy and snappy phrasing, working into a nice wail on the final time through. And Royston has been adding some great fills all along, but next he gets some solo spots as Hirahara and Rivera trade eights with him for a go-around. They finish it up with a final run through the melody and repeat of those cool final eight bars. Then we're going to get John Coltrane's Alabama. Everything has been short and sweet on this album so far, I should mm. say, with compact tunes for around four minutes. But this one goes over 10 minutes and starts out with Rivera taking its solo. Uh, he starts with some short rising phrases and modal ideas, then works through ideas around the melody in rubato fashion with some Coltrane-like sheets of his notes, a really nice tone, and get some low register notes to bounce back up from in his lines. Uh, the others join him around 2 minutes and 20 seconds, still in rubato fashion for the final phrases. Then the rhythm section gets the tempo in motion. Listen to how the field changes up to swing and back with great work from Royston as Rivera returns with the melody. Great bass work from Kozlov too. Rivera continues on soloing and we get to hear him work on some more harmonic exploration and angsty tone in this one. Hirohara gets adventurous with harmonies and rhythms here as well and he hammers some really percussive chord ideas along with dazzling runs. Rivera returns for another melody run and some final flurries overheld out chords with waves of piano from Hirohara and cymbal and tom swells from Royston. Take a John Coltrane tune and stretch it out longer than Coltrane's version. Uh, it, it takes some uh, level of seriousness and commitment, also emotional honesty, and I think it comes out really well. Nice yeah. job here. You really got to establish that in this piece, yeah. you know, this kind of the gravity of it. Trek 7, Vera's original also composure. Uh, the mood lightens here for a relaxed swinging tune with the four-bar intro from the rhythm section and pick up into the melody from Rivera. It's a breezy 32-bar theme with a nice rhythmic change up to more of a walking swing after the eighth bar and a cool final cadence. Uh, Hirahara solos first with a nice relaxed feel, mixing up rhythmic and chimey chord ideas with some smooth melodic runs. Rivera's solo has a lot of snappy rhythmic variety, a bluesy lick, and some smooth double-time melodic ideas. Kozlov follows with a bass solo, nicely melodic, but with snappy, tricky rhythm figures, and another melody run with a nice, lazy ending finishes it up. Track 8, another Rivera original, Simon. This one starts out with an even Latin kind of rhythm with a smooth but syncopated tenor sax melody line with great snappy answering piano lines under it for 16 bars. The next equal length section is a bit softer in contrast. There's a quick break and then another 16 bar melody section that seems like a variation of the earlier theme. And then the next section gets softer, building up on a repeated sax phrase, transitioning to a driving swing from the ninth bar and launching Rivera into a solo. He really burns it up with speedy connected lines, and the groove change-ups along the way are cool, with Royston mixing it up over ringing chords from Hirohara. Rivera works into a long-held wailing note, but it's not the end yet. He still has more ideas to blow out before he passes it off to Hirohara, who starts out with some really connected lines into some playful rhythmic ideas ideas and chiming chords. And Royston gets a solo next, focusing on some skillful, speedy tom work. They play through the melody sections again. This time the final one works into a slowdown to the end. Track 9, another Rivera original, La Malinche. 
Back on soprano for this minor melody Latin ballad. It's 32 bar AABA form and Rivera slithers into it with a pickup phrase. Kozlov keeps the tempo with his bass pulse and Royston turns up his light clicks and cymbals a little more on the repeat of the A section while Hirahara doubles the sax melody line. The B section lifts the tune into a major mood. Uh, Hirahara tinkles into a solo with a very dainty line. This one really shows off his very touch with a nice attention to dynamics. Rivera follows, starting out with relaxed slinky lines and working into some more pleading higher register phrases and a cool triplet line. They keep the solos over the A pattern. Uh, next, Kozlov gets a bowed bass solo that really cries yeah. and digs down low at the end of phrases. All along, Royston keeps it light and tight, but swells with creative fills. They pick up from Kozlov's solo with the B melody section into an extended 12-measure A section that builds and lifts to a hold. Rivera ends it with a slow and soft phrase over piano chords and some final bowing from Kozlov. And track 10, Battle Fatigue, another Rivera original. Royston signals in a four-bar intro with a zippy angular tenor sax line into the fast melody. It's a 32-bar AABA construction. The A section is a straight Latin beat with ominous low open chords and piano figures. Rivera comes in on the last two bars with a topsy-turvy line into more busy lines over the repeat. The B section changes up to swing and over to Hirahara, and Rivera picks up on the lines again into the final A section with a different sax line worked with piano. It's a cool arrangement. Uh, Rivera launches into a solo, and they keep the driving swing feel over Kozlov's chugging bass. Rivera keeps his lines pushing ahead, connecting up ideas, and fed by Hirahara's punchy chords and Royston's fills and accents. Real high energy playing here. Hirohara has a lot of interesting rhythmic variety in this solo, mixing things up between more flowing right-hand lines. He finishes up into chiming chords for Royston to get some speedy work around the kit with impressive tom and cymbal ideas, and they ended up with two of the final A sections from the original melody and a couple held-out chords with piano waves for Rivera to blow a final phrase over. And we're going to finish up the album with a Horace Silver tune, Peace, and this comes from 1959 recording Blowing the Blues Away that featured one of my favorite trumpet players, Blue Mitchell. It's a solo rubato piano opening from Hirahara with a great upward run. He gets an ostinato figure going in the left hand that Royston adds a soft click to and Kozlov joins in on. The groove is set. Rivera's back on soprano sax here. This tune has a rather short 10-measure melody, and Rivera takes it around twice. Royston has light and tight hi-hat going on, so listen to the pulse of Kozlov's bass that sinks to the rhythmic movement of the melody. Hirahara solos first with bouncy phrases, working way up high and connecting to extended lines of ideas, and two-handed synced figures and spots with a lot of variety in his left hand. Rivera's smooth and keeps a nice swinging bounce in his lines that trace out well-connected melodies. Rather than rhyme cymbal, Royston has tight hi-hat on the upbeats, but it still really swings. Kozlov gets a bass solo next, starting out with some cool interval ideas that he picked up from Rivera's final phrase. Uh, he has a really fun slide up from the end of a line, working melodic ideas up into the high register and getting some harmonics in too. It's a really great solo. They play through the short melody once more, get a bouncy vamp going for Rivera and Hirahara to add some ideas over into some final piano trickles and light cymbals. So that's it. More great stuff from Rivera. A variety of original compositions, hard swinging, 
Latin Grooves, a gospelly number, and works by Coltrane and Horace Silver. A full and strong, confident tone on tenor, also warm on soprano, uh, lots of rhythmic drive in his soloing, strong melodic ideas, but he can get outside and work up tension and angsty feelings when he wants to. Hirohara sounds about as inspired as I've ever heard him on this recording with great solos everywhere. Royston and Kozlov play great as always. Well, in my opinion, these three together are one of the best rhythm sections out there today. I'm happy they record so much together and I try to hear as much of their recordings as I can. And I'm looking forward to whatever Rivera puts together for his next recording. And as I told you in a message last night, I just listened to these three guys again as the rhythm section to trumpeter John. Josh Lawrence's new Positone release called And That Too. And you know what? We're going to have to feature that too very yeah. soon, I think. Yeah. In fact, um, I second what you said about uh, Art Hirahara. And in fact, I thought that on this album, yeah, there are a lot of short tracks on this because only Rivera and Hirahara really get soloing time, although the bass player comes in occasionally. And I thought these tracks were over way too quickly because I wanted to hear <laughs> yeah. more of soloing, like more of Hirahara in this case. Because uh, he plays exceptionally well on this album. Yeah. I wanted to hear him stretch out. He plays in a lot of older jazz styles here, which is not always the case with him. I mean, he, he has a lot of different ways he can, he can play. Yeah, he can play any style, really. Yeah, and he puts them all across excellently. Like you, I'd say this is the best playing I've heard from him. Sound quality is fine on this. I feel like the recording could have had a richer quality to it. Now, the drums, I like drums that are more dimensional, but with body impact, but... This drummer is playing like a lot of really highly detailed, fast material. So it's it's a detail-oriented recording of the drums. So it comes across a little less like three-dimensionally in the recording, I guess, just to get all that detail in. It's probably better for that. That's just a personal opinion. That's hmm. not anything against the recording. The drumming on the album is exceptional with lots of detail. All performances are high octane throughout, you know, not as much on Alabama, which is a more kind of serious piece, but it's a fantastic album. And this one's definitely going in the collection. There it yeah. is. You'll, once I've passed away, you'll find it there on the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> People who come to pick up my remaining stuff. <laughs> Positone just keeps putting out great stuff uh, with yeah. these guys and, and other players on the label too. And they, they should get as much recognition as possible. We featured so many of the recordings in the last two years because they're all really yeah. great and uh, high energy. Lots of new original music coming out there. So more from Positone. All right. We're going to finish up with a new face then. And, you know, yeah. you can never get enough jazz flute. It's kind of like Barry Sachs, way. you know. Yeah. And uh, although we have had some great recordings of flute on the podcast that we talked about from Charles Lloyd, he always has yeah. a couple of flute tunes. We had Carlos Jimenez's Woods. Yeah, one of my favorites from last year, although I didn't pick that one for the uh, top 10 last year. But anyway. Morton Arkenfeld and Carlos Santos's Cadencia right. Verde y Amarela with the great Brazilian uh, saxophone and flautist uh, Edu Neves. And the flute right. playing on that was just great. But got a new artist to feature here. That's Isabel Bodense. I think I pronounced that right. That sounds about right. Release mm. Flowing Mind. This is on Edition Collage label, and I had to <laughs> I had to talk about this one because it's got uh, flute, not only flute but bass flute, 
And her group that she plays with is Organ Trio, one, another thing that we love right. here. And so Balenza is half French, half German. She studied orchestral music in Frankfurt in the early 90s. Then she went on to study with jazz flutist and composer James Newton in Los Angeles. And then she went to study music in Cuba to learn Latin music from Cuban musicians. And she started the quartet in 2018 with uh, flute, guitar, Hammond, organ, and drums. I guess saying that it's reminiscent of recordings in the 60s with uh, George Benson and flutist Joe Farrell. And so when I saw this and the uh, album listing had the YouTube recording with the bass flute, and I said, oh, yeah, I've got to hear this. And it's turned out to be a really enjoyable recording. So we've got... Potenza on flutes of various types, the bass flute and other flutes. Now, I have to admit my lack of knowledge of the flute family too much. I know there's your right. standard concert flute, and I know alto flute and bass flute, hmm. but I don't know if there are other flutes in the flute family as well. And I'm not sure. There's no listing, and I checked on her website for which flutes are on which tracks. The bass flute is pretty easy to uh, know when you hear it and when you see it of course yeah. it kind of looks like kind of looks like a giant intestine <laughs> yeah but uh you know the range is on of, a stand you need to you can't yeah, hold you, it you it has to be on a stand big, to support right. it it's funny anyway we've got thomas bowser on hammond organ lorenzo petroca on guitar lars binder on drums and on the last track, which is a, another version of a track we'll hear, we've got Hilda Singer-Biederman on violin and Ruth Sarazin on cello. So we're going to start out with a track called Confluting. Hmm. This is the original. Uh, the drums kick it into a 10-measure intro of minor organ chords, and then it breaks for Bodensa to start the melody, and you get your first taste of this great huge bass flute sound. The minor melody is catchy with a cool repeated riff at the start and Bowser gets going again with chugging walking bass on the organ. There's a 16 measure A section that repeats with a different ending that lifts and leads into a contrasting 16 bar B section with longer flute tones in parts and they break up the swing drive a bit in the bass and cymbals to let it float more. We hear that catchy riff again in the final A section that's extended to 22 measures, leading to an organ solo from Bowser. They keep the same exact melody shape for the solo, and Bowser works up slowly from shorter phrases with a nice swing bounce to a more animated climax with some zippier lines over the final section. Bodensa is up next, starting out with great relaxed feel, getting some cool harmonics on the flute there, breathy pulses, snappy rhythmic phrases mixed in with really flowing melodic lines. Petroka has been playing some subtle chords under everything until now and gets a guitar solo next. He's got a very warm tone, and even with some fast picking in his lines, it's really smooth flowing. His ideas have interesting phrasing and rhythms too. Binder gets a drum solo, mixing it up around the kit, and the others join back in on the final four bars of the second A section with the rising line into the B part and the last A section, vamping a bit on the end for Bodensa to get out some really low final notes. Uh, very cool sound. Track two, another Bodensa original ASAP, ASAP, but I think they may be written in lowercase, so maybe you're supposed to say ASAP. A pulsing samba beat for this one. It's got an eight measure intro with cool flute fluttering and interesting tones from Bodensa. Uh, I'm not a flute player, so I don't know the terms for the techniques. I'll just describe them. You know, there's you can get harmonics, you can get vocalized 
lines with the flute tones and fluttering. Uh, anyway, she takes this breezy and happy melody. It sounds like it's on a regular concert flute here to me. Uh, when the first eight bar section repeats, you get settled in. But from the fifth measure, things take a big rhythmic detour from the samba beat with a slower, steady movement under a line of even interval ideas from the flute. Uh, things get back on track with the bass pulse returning for Bodenza to finish up the melody. Petroka's up for another guitar solo. Interesting phrasing and ideas again, and some fun repeated rhythmic intervals and double stop ideas. Bodenza solo is next, working from the first melody phrases and then getting fiery and breathy when they hit the rhythmic change up idea again. She continues on when the samba beat returns, ties it back to the initial melody phrase, which repeats with an exciting endy phrase to a rhythmic finish. Track three, the title track, Flowing Mind, also one of her original compositions. Binder gets it started with some very delicate and light cymbals. Petroka gets some soft syncopated chords going, leading to a little bouncy figure to cue in Bodenza's flute melody. It sounds like she's on the big bass flute here again. It's a very pretty and longing 32 measure melody that builds and lifts as it goes. Binder's cymbals mark out a very lazy kind of samba beat. They go around the melody twice and then Bowser, who has been adding soft bass underneath the guitar, gets an organ solo. He focuses on simple melodic ideas before getting to some more speedy runs and adding a little whir into the tone. Then bringing it down softly. Bodenza starts her solo way down low. What a tone. She works up from the gentle phrases, getting more agitated with harmonics and added vocalizations. It's a beautiful, subtle solo. She connects back to another run through the melody with an extended ending holding out some long tones to a final rhythmic figure like we heard bring in the original melody. Track four, <laughs> the most interesting title, Molecular Cooking. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like it's one, in a microwave there. <laughs> yeah, another one of our original tunes. Starts with 16 bars of solo drums, then Bodenza plays a boppy and syncopated broken up 16 bar melody line. Sounds like concert flute here. Uh, they go around that again with the addition of low organ bass line. And it seems like we're going around once more, maybe into a solo, but after six measures more or so, the flute picks up into a new smooth 16 bar melody line over walking organ bass and guitar chords. Bowser and Petroka mix up some organ and guitar solo sections, then with Bowser taking the longer uh, 38 bar sections and Petroka 16 bar interludes. Podenza's up next and she gets an extended solo over just the drums, giving her a lot of harmonic freedom, and she does some intense playing, adding vocalizations, and ending up with some cool aggressive phrases and trills. They return to the opening broken boppy theme, this time working it with both organ and flute. No repeat, but they do the transition section into the more flowing melody with some final phrase repeats to the end. Track five is called Dog Rose, and this one is by Lars Binder. It starts with a big organ chord eight bar intro and then quiets down for another eight measures with guitar chords and funky organ syncopated hits and tasty hi-hat from Binder. It's got a real triplet subdivided groove, so you could kind of feel it in four or six beats. Uh, Bodensa comes in with the melody, seems to be 30 measures, starts out smooth. The organ joins her line on the repeat of the first phrase, but then the heat gets turned up with harmonics as it pushes through with descending lines over big organ chords. She continues on into a solo that includes vocalizations and really intense rhythmic phrases, cool triplet lines, and fluttering. It's very cool stuff. Uh, Binder gets a drum solo next, mixing things up around the kit into some tight hi-hat and building back into a return of the melody with a slowdown at the end for some final fiery flute. Track six, a tune by the guitarist Lorenzo Petroca, Mediterranean Bassa, 
Petroka starts it out with a repeated syncopated chord pattern and Binder adds a clicky bossa beat for Bolinsa to come in with the gentle and happy 20 measure melody that has the flute reaching down to lower notes in the phrases. Uh, they go around it twice. Petroka plays a solo guitar 18 measure bridge section that the flute joins back in on of the final measures of to lead to another round of the 20 measure melody. Petroka gets an improvised guitar solo next. Nice melodic and relaxed phrasing with some more accented articulated fast triplet licks that still sound smooth with his really warm tone. Bolinsa follows with a flute solo. She works up to some intense vocalized parts for a climax, but what I like about this solo is her phrasing with nice spacing and the little pitch bends she adds to some mm-hmm. notes. Very cool. They play through the melody section again, ending with the guitar bridge and the flute joining in for an extended ending of some vocalized flurries. Now, so interestingly here in this tune, the bridge section is actually 16 measures as they use it in the solos. But the first time you hear it in the melody, it's extended by two measures when the flute joins in. And then when we hear it at the very end, it's extended. It's just a cool little structural kind of uh, device that I noticed and thought it was pretty neat. Track seven, Samoa. Without Me, another Hmm. Polenza original. There's an eight measure intro of a slow and light Latin drum beat with some low and faint ghostly organ. Hmm. Petroka comes in with the somber 16 measure melody line for two rounds, very sensitive and gentle playing. And then Polenza comes in on a wonderfully low snaking line into an eight measure little transition or bridge section and then takes a melody round. Rich low tones with gentle vibrato. I guess it's bass flute here. Uh, Petroka takes two rounds to solo and then Bodenza takes a round with the bridge section on either end. Both play beautiful gentle solos. That leads to Petroka taking the melody again with Bodenza adding a counterline and then joining in with him. They extend it with a vamp and some ghostly final flute harmonics from Bodenza. A subtle, beautiful song showing off the great tones of Petroka's guitar and her flute. Track eight, a Thomas Bowser tune, Chili Chali. And hmm. this one wipes away the sad mood right away with a funky solo organ intro from Bowser, uh, syncopated bass pedals and percussive chords. And I like how he drops out on the final measure to create anticipation. But Binder kicks it in on the drums. Petroka adds some super funky guitar to build the groove for another eight measures before Bodenza comes in with the melody working together with Bowser. It's 48 measures in all. The repetitive riffs hook you in over different sections that get some harmonic variation and a final section with an organ break uh, leading to a final break with a little grunt before Bowser gets to work on an organ solo. Uh, super funky stuff here over Petroka's rhythm guitar, and Bowser starts softly building up for uh, some tension and working up the volume into some percussive bluesy chords and longer holds. Balenza returns for the final melody section that works into a break for her solo. This one's a lot of fun, bluesy and gaspy, a la Roland Kirk. Uh, Hmm. They do the final section transitioning into a drum solo from Binder and then lay a clipped version of the melody phrases on top without the funky guitar or held out lines for the drums to pop on through until the final melody phrase and an emphatic flute and organ finishing line. And we're going to end up with uh, Flowing Mind again with strings this time. And so the violin and cello start out this version uh, in the intro and then 
they fade away and re-enter under the melody. The strings go out for the organ solo and then come back in under the flute solo, get a little transition figure to the next organ section, and then they come in again and stay to the end. It's a more compact version, but a nice arrangement with a different kind of atmosphere. And that's it. So I found uh, Bodensa to be a fabulous flute player and a great soloist. Lots of ideas, of amazing technique. This recording's a great mix of Latin rhythms, funky grooves, and beautiful ballads. The melodies are all really nice with interesting compositions uh, from Bodensa herself and the others, and fine playing all around. And I really love the timbre of that bass flute. Yeah, this is mostly a record to chill out to. A lot of the uh, tunes are kind of slow good way to unwind really listening to this mm. in the evening there is that one uh, funky track by the organist chili chally but most of them are really kind of mellow yeah this is going to be a go-to for me because it has so many of my favorite sounds on it you have the organ like what do we say in new york you got your organ you got your guitar you got your jazz flute you know you got everything yeah. you could want on this anyway it's gentle and appealing and very quiet all the way through and ideal as i said for late night listening and I enjoyed the fact that uh, Bodenson sometimes went for some harsher effects on the flute, despite the overall soothing atmosphere around her. Like she'll do these kind of like, you know, that sound that you get in the uh, the shakuhachi where they just kind of blow air through it and there's like a kind of ghost of a tone. You just hear yeah. the air rushing through the bamboo. She gets a, a sound that, that would be the flute equivalent of that, among others. There's a lot of you know flutter-tonguing sounds and things like that. Um, there are a few tracks with a light Brazilian feel to them, then the light funky track in Chili Chali. Yeah, this is for late night, I thought, overall, and it kept me interested while relaxing me as well. I felt really good when I was listening to this. Yeah, what a great idea to put uh, flute and organ trio uh, together. It just goes yeah. to really nice combination of, you know, tones. And um... She must have been listening to the adult music podcast. She said, <laughs> hey, they like organ trio, they like flute, let's do that. Yeah, and we'll so. definitely get on and yeah. they did yeah we did <laughs> yeah i want to hear some more too so uh yeah, yeah. she's really a virtuosic flute player and uh but with funky ideas and those cool sounds uh, mixed up in there so anyone who plays flute likes flute gotta check this one out and right. as you know we can't resist an organ trio <laughs> recording so yeah if there's something like a bass flute on there we absolutely have to hear that just the, the word bass just draws right. us right away <laughs> so that's it and that interesting uh, timbre little uh, snack there is a kind of a hint of what's coming next week because we're going to do something a little bit different next week, aren't we? We are. We're going to go for um, mostly accordion recordings, although I yeah. couldn't get three of them. I've got two. <laughs> so I figured I'd put them both on. That might be a little too much accordion for me for the week, but we'll see. You know, try it out yeah. and see how it goes. And I've got one accordion and bass recording. Then mm. I've got another album that has... Uh, Actually, really interesting combination of different things and just a few tracks with accordion. And I couldn't find a third recorded album, but I do have oh, that's cool, though. You know, that mm. other free read instrument, the harmonica. So I've got a great oh. uh, harmonica jazz recording, another instrument we don't hear enough of, but it's kind of coming back uh, recently with some great players. So we're gonna have a little read yeah. fest for next week's episode. I had to improvise too, though you had reeds. Okay, I'll go for a read up. I went for the, the keyboard end of the accordion because it has like a keyboard on it. Yeah. So I had to go for the clavichord with uh, Andra Schiff's new recording of uh, Bach works because mm. you don't hear the clavichord much. It's a very sensitive instrument. I already gave one of those discs a listen. There are two discs on it. Hmm. And it's got a, you know, it's kind of a new way to listen to Bach. We don't get to hear this gentle a sound too yeah. often. 
Right, yeah. so be something a little bit different. Uh, mm. It's always good to mix things up a little bit. Sometimes we get a little bit uh, world music diversion, and this time mm. we're going to get a little different timbre to delve into, and uh, right. should be uh, interesting exploration. So you can catch all of that in episode 105. If you want to hear those recordings before the podcast, after this podcast is published, you can find that playlist on Deezer and also have a link to it on our Facebook site. So be sure to come over and check that out uh, after you hear this podcast. Thanks as always to Fast Signs of Staten Island for glowing neon logo. And remember, check out those other podcasts. The links are at the end of the description. And once we finish up here, you can catch those promos at the end of the podcast. Any closing words, Mike? Oh, I think um, I've said enough. <laughs> so there's a long way we've been going on here but lots of good music as always to discuss so until next week episode 105 keep on listening we'll see you for 105 Gerald Albright Korea Schneider Charlie Hunter Duke Robillard Sean Jones Walter Beasley Steve Swallow Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz blues and R&B podcast and radio show and it's not really about Baltimore subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or feature favorite artist that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.